The History of Philosophy, Founders of Western Philosophy, Thales to Hume. Lecture 2. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The philosophers that we looked at last week, although they were extremely influential on all later philosophy, did not have complete systems of philosophy to offer. They had leads, individual ideas, particular observations and arguments, and of course these were accepted by many later philosophers, but these early pre-Socratics had no definitive, systematic, all-embracing approaches to philosophy that they had yet worked out. Tonight we're going to look at the first actually developed, worked out, systematic approaches to philosophy. The first attempts at complete systems or at least overall approaches to philosophy. We're going to look at three kinds of philosophy that were formulated in Greece and endure to this day with legions of supporters right to the present all around you. Although presumably not in this room. <clears throat> the three kinds are materialism, skepticism, idealism. And I'll say a word at the outset defining each of these three basic approaches. Materialism is a technical term <coughs> in metaphysics. It does not mean a preoccupation with money or sex. It is the view that reality is basically matter in motion, and that all so-called non-material or mental phenomena are to be explained entirely in physical material terms. Skepticism is the view that no objective or certain knowledge of anything by anyone is possible. In other words, that what we call knowledge is really a guess, a hunch, a subjective feeling, a probability, or whatever you wish to call it, but not true knowledge. Idealism, again, is a technical term in philosophy. It does not mean devotion to the good. It is the view, again, from metaphysics, that reality is basically non-material, that the material world is not an irreducible primary, but actually simply a byproduct or expression of something more fundamental, something which is non-material in character. Now I note uh, for the record that these are not the only possible approaches to philosophy, these three. Aristotle is no one of them and neither is objectivism, but of that we'll say more later. <coughs> now all of these three that we're going to look at tonight are derivatives in various ways of various of the early philosophers that we looked at last week. In a way, you could say that materialism is implied by Thales' view that everything is water, since water is a form of matter. Although Thales is too early to have grasped or stated the materialist implications of his statement, and it's highly doubtful that he would have accepted materialism if he had realized that it was entailed in his statement. Uh, materialism's major Greek spokesman are the atomists, and that's the first school we'll look at tonight. Skepticism is primarily a derivative of Heraclitus. You remember his disciple Cratylus who stopped speaking altogether on the grounds that there was nothing to refer to. <coughs> and its major exponent are, is the sophist school. Uh, they are the last pre-Platonic school. I don't call them any longer pre-Socratic because they are contemporary with Socrates in the fifth century BC. And idealism, uh, in Greece is a derivative essentially of the Pythagorean viewpoint with a large boost or assist from Parmenides and Heraclitus. And its major exponent, of course, is Plato, helped along by certain suggestions of Socrates. 
Now, of these three movements, I should say at the outset, the idealism of Plato was incomparably more influential in the ancient world, in the medieval world, in the modern world, and in the 20th century than either materialism or skepticism alone or in combination have ever been. In fact, one of the great uh, attractions that Plato offered his followers and does till this day was that his approach to philosophy enabled them to escape the materialist or the skeptic approaches. So we're going to look comparatively briefly first at materialism and skepticism as general background and then begin on Plato. And tonight we will cover just the base of his metaphysics. And now let's then turn first to the materialists, the atomists as they were called in Greece for a reason we'll see in a moment. We saw last week the problem uh, raised by the opposition of Heraclitus and Parmenides. Everything is changed and that's all that exists. There is no change, only the motionless one. And we saw the Pythagoreans attempt to solve the problem by postulating two worlds. One which is constant flux, this one, and that should satisfy Heraclitus in their view, and one which is immutable, and that should satisfy Parmenides. So there was an attempt to reconcile these two views. Now the atomists are the outcome of a very different kind of attempt also to reconcile Parmenides and Heraclitus. In other words, a very different attempt from the Pythagoreans. The atomists belong to a general approach which is called pluralism. P-L-U-R-A-L, pluralism. And the name I'll explain in a moment. The pluralists were a group of philosophers who agreed with elements of Parmenides and elements of Heraclitus as follows. They agreed with Parmenides that the stuff that makes up reality has to be uncreated, indestructible, eternal, unchanging. They agreed absolutely there can be no what is becoming what is not, or vice versa. There is no what is not. Or to put it another way, they agreed that nothing really new can ever come into or go out of existence. <coughs> but they agreed with Heraclitus that there is such a thing as change, process, action, motion, becoming. And they regarded this as simply too obvious a fact to deny. The question was, how will we reconcile these two views? And they got this idea. They said, what if we abandon monism? Now, monism, remember, was the view I introduced the term last week. It is the view that there is only one world stuff, that everything, for instance, is water or air or whatever it happens to be. <coughs> Suppose we abandon that view and say instead that there are many different stuffs which make up the world. And, of course, the name pluralism will come from the idea of many stuffs. Let us, they said to themselves, endow each of these stuffs by itself with all the Parmenidean characteristics, so that in itself, each of them is unchanging, eternal, indestructible, like a little miniature Parmenidean universe. But, they said, the one thing we'll allow these stuffs is to move around in space. That's all. We'll allow them to change their position. We'll allow locomotion, <coughs> locomotion as the only type of change permitted. Now, we will not, therefore, allow any internal alteration in the stuffs. No change in their individual qualities. And they argued locomotion doesn't violate Parmenides' principle because it doesn't require anything new to come into existence or to go out of existence. 
locomotion involves simply <coughs> a rearrangement of the stuffs that always exist in new combinations. A constant mixing and unmixing, as they put it, of the stuffs in different uh, arrangements. So we will never have a case of what is becoming what is not, or vice versa. We are going to then explain every other kind of change exclusively as being actually, in reality, a process of changing position and therefore changing rearrangements of these unchanging stuffs. If you want to think of it this way, we'll take Parmenides I <coughs> and smash it into a bunch of separate little stuffs. And we will explain all change, growth, becoming, development as merely a process in which these eternal stuffs constantly shift around and rearrange themselves. So we won't need any reference to non-existence as the beginning or the end of the process of change. And the key point will be nothing new ever comes into existence. Well, of course, the question was, what are these many stuffs? Now, the early pluralists are primarily of historical interest. The first advocate of this approach was a man called Empedocles, E-M-P-E-D-O-C-L-E-S, who was 490 to 435 B.C. And he was not very original <coughs> in his concept of what the stuffs were. He just picked up the various stuffs of his predecessors and combined them into one view. So he said there were four basic kinds of stuff, four roots, as he called it, earth, air, water, and fire. And everything else was merely combinations and rearrangements of these four. Uh, so much for Empedocles. I mean, he had a clever idea, but it's not worth spending time on here. <coughs> now, he had a successor, Anaxagoras. A-N-A-X-A-G-O-R-A-S, who was born around 500 B.C., who disagreed with him. Also a pluralist, but uh, he argued as follows. He said to Empedocles, in effect, you say there is supposed to be nothing new coming into existence. You say that on your philosophy, you never have what is not becoming what is. But I don't see it. As far as I can tell on your viewpoint, you are violating Parmenides' basic principle all the time. Consider, for instance, tomatoes or bananas or uh, tobacco or chalk or flesh or a hair and so on. Now, you say that these things are formed when earth, air, and so on get into different combinations. But even so, all these things I mentioned are different from earth, air, water, and fire. They have different qualities. They have different tastes and different colors and different sounds and different odors. So something new is actually coming into existence. Uh, when uh, various changes uh, take place, banana taste comes into existence, and then when the banana disintegrates, it goes out of existence, and so on. He said, we have to really be consistent here. If there are truly to be no new qualities in reality, and that's the basic Parmenidean principle, there has to be way more than four stuffs. There has to be an indefinite number of stuffs. There have to be as many different stuffs as there are different types of things. There has to be tomato stuff with its distinctive qualities, and banana stuff, flesh stuff, hair stuff, tobacco stuff, etc., etc. And each of these will have to be regarded as irreducible, inexplicable in terms of anything else, a basic ingredient of reality. Now, he said, if we take this view and we say little tiny bits 
all of these stuffs are actually in everything. Little seeds, as he put it. Of, it, of all these stuffs are actually in everything. And you might say, well, but I don't see banana stuff and tomato stuff when I look at somebody's hair. And of course, the answer would be only little seeds are there, and your senses are too gross uh, to detect them. Your senses deceive you. You only see the dominant stuff. But suppose that little bits, little seeds were of everything, was in everything. Then, he says, change would really only be a rearrangement, and nothing new would ever come into existence. If we burned wood, for instance, and converted it to ash, well, there wouldn't be new qualities coming into existence because the ash stuff was always in the wood to begin with, and all that happened is a certain rearrangement made us able to perceive the ash stuff and temporarily obscured the wood stuff, which is still there, and so on for all changes. This, he said, is the only thing to do if we're to obey Parmenides' principle. On the other hand, this was a total dead end from the task undertaken by Thales. It was the total collapse. Because Thales wanted to find unity in the midst of diversity. He wanted to find the one in the many. And here we end up with diversity, with the many as absolutely irreducible and inexplicable. <clears throat> it's a hopeless theory, which would be the end of science. All you can say about tomatoes is they're made of tomato stuff, and so on for everything else. And yet it seemed to follow from Empedocles, if you're going to be consistent with Parmenides. At this point, the atomists enter the scene. Now, the two famous atomists are Leucippus, L-E-U-C-I-P-P-U-S, who lived sometime in the 6th century BC, and almost nothing is known of him. And therefore, the much more famous one is Democritus, D-E-M-O-C-R-I-T-U-S, who, uh, as far as we can tell, lived a whole century, from 460 to 360 BC. Now, they were also pluralists, these two, the Adamist school. They agreed that the world was composed of many elements, each of them by itself too tiny to see, and that all change was merely the mixing and unmixing, the rearranging of these elements. But, they said, Anaxagoras' uh, theory is hopeless. What can we do to get out of it? Well, they came up with a theory which was destined to be fantastically influential. They said we have to distinguish two kinds of characteristics which physical things possess. Two basically different kinds of characteristics. The qualities and the quantities. The qualitative characteristics versus the quantitative or mathematical or numerical characteristics. Now, in the qualities, were included things like colors, red, orange, yellow, etc. Sounds, loud, soft, etc. Odors, you can think of examples. Tastes, temperatures, warm, cold, etc. Texture, rough, smooth, etc. Those are the qualities. In the quantities are the attributes which are mathematically measurable. And here you see an obvious influence of the Pythagoreans. And they include size the exact amount of extension of a given particle. Shape, is it triangular or rectangular or what? Motion or rest, and at what rate? Is it standing still or is it moving? And if so, at what rate? And number, is a thing one particle or is there ten particles making up a peach or whatever? Those are the big four of the uh, uh, quantity. Size, shape, state of motion, and number. Now, on the basis of this distinction, they said there is only one way out of Anaxagoras' dilemma. 
And that is to strip qualities from the things in the world altogether. To say that the things in the physical world actually only have quantitative characteristics. Actually only have size, shape, motion, and number. Because they say, if you say that qualities, as they have just defined it, if you say that qualities like colors, odors, tastes, temperatures, and so on are real, then you've got two choices and it's disaster either direction. Either you have to say some of them are real, but not all. And that's, in principle, the position of Empedocles. Some qualities are real and not the rest. But then the others emerge, come into existence, and go out of existence, and that's forbidden by Parmenides. Or else you have to say all qualities are real. All are equally basic and eternal. And that's Anaxagoras' position, which is hopeless. Well, our only alternative, if we're to escape the disasters implicit in saying some qualities are real, or all qualities are real, is to say no qualities are real. <clears throat> we'll say that reality in itself is exclusively quantitative. The various stuffs that make it up in themselves have only size, shape, motion, number. What we call qualities are simply the way that what's really out there affects us. Merely, they are merely the subjective effects on human beings. Merely the way things appear to us. And if we take that view, they said, we will be able to explain change without violating Parmenides. When wood becomes ash, no new qualities are taking place in reality, because in reality there aren't any qualities at all. Uh, the appearance of new qualities is simply taking place in our minds as a result of different rearrangements of purely quantitative particles out there in the world. Therefore, reality consists of a huge, actually infinite number of tiny stuffs or particles possessing only these quantitative features. Now, what will we call them, these particles? Well, each of them is absolutely Parmenidean. It's a little tiny Parmenidean one. It's uh, absolutely solidly packed within any given particle. It's a planum, if you remember that term, completely full. There's no little holes in it. So if you tried to get the point of a knife or even a needle into one of these particles, you couldn't do it because it's solidly packed. It's completely uncuttable. And since the Greek for uncuttable is atome, it came out that these little particles are atoms. And therefore, they took the view that all change is nothing but spatial change of atomic position. And thus the name atomists, which has now supersedes pluralism because the old pluralist just fell into disrepute. This became the sophisticated form of pluralism. Now the question comes, how do you differentiate one atom from another? Since they all uh, have no qualities at all, what makes one atom one atom and separates it from another? And the answer was, well, there must be empty space between them. Because if there was no empty space, it was, it was all one solidly packed mash of atoms, then it would be the same as one big atom. In other words, we'd be back to Parmenides 1. Therefore, over and above atoms, there has to be the empty spaces between them. And therefore, they said there are two constituents that make up reality, atoms and, as they called it, the void. The void being the empty spaces which separate the atoms. Now, of course, the void is a crude violation of Parmenides' principle. It's a 
blatant what is not uh, sitting out there as a constituent of reality. They tried to get around it by saying, oh no, it isn't a violation of Parmenides, it's just that there's two kinds of reality, full reality and empty reality, but that's a pretty crummy way out. <laughs> in any event, the universe is atoms in the void, and that's all. <clears throat> now, how do these atoms operate? What determines how they behave? And their answer was they operate exclusively as a result of physical pressure and impact from other atoms and their physical reaction accordingly. They smash each other and collide strictly according to the laws of mechanics. Of course, they didn't know the laws of mechanics in those days, but what we would now call the laws of mechanics. And this is sometimes referred to as the billiard ball metaphysics. Uh, if you imagine a uh, person has shot, uh, the, uh, the ball's broken them up, and they are now just caroming back and forth, smashing each other, and moving back and forth strictly by mechanistic law. Well, according to the atomist, everything operates that way. Everything that happens, happens exclusively according to the laws of mechanics. Which means, first of all, nothing ever happens by chance. They were opposed altogether to the idea that something causeless could happen. Everything is determined by the atomic configurations and the various pressures and reactions by mechanical law. It means, secondly, they said, that nothing ever happens for a purpose or an end or a goal. Because atoms, or billiard balls, if you want to think of that analogy, do not move around in order to get into the side pocket. They move around simply as a result of the forces operating upon them. Now, they were the laws of mechanics. They have no purposes, no goals. Now, you may be tempted to think, well, billiard balls move that way, but the man who wields the cue was motivated by a different principle of behavior. He had a purpose whether it's to enjoy himself or show off his skill or make money or pass the time or whatever it happens to be. But you see, if you are an atomist and you subscribe to this philosophy, you say the man wielding the cue operates on exactly the principle that the billiard balls do once he's hit them. He also is a quivering system of atoms. Certain atoms struck him in the appropriate places and that caused parts of his body to start quivering and that caused him to pick up the cue and that caused and so and so and at a certain point the motion is communicated to the balls which start to jostle back and forth and then they hit the table and others jostle and so on and so on and so on and that's it. Now a metaphysics such as this is called technically mechanistic materialism. Now each of those words has a meaning. Materialism I've already defined as the view that matter is the fundamental reality and that anything non-material is simply a derivative or byproduct to be explained entirely in physical terms. Mechanism is the view that everything happens in the, according to the laws of mechanics. In other words, it is contrasted with the view known as teleology, T-E-L-E-O-L-O-G-Y. Teleology is the idea that purpose is operative somewhere in the universe. Now, teleologists do not agree among themselves where. A religious teleologist will say the universe as a whole has a purpose, and everything has a purpose. A more naturalistic type of teleologist will say, no, only certain parts of the universe has a purpose. For instance, only living creatures, or only conscious creatures, or conceivably only just human beings are governed by purpose. But uh, in any event, 
the mechanism deny purpose on any level anywhere. There simply is no such thing. Purposeful behavior is a myth. That is the essence of the meaning of the metaphysics of mechanistic materialism. And these are the first mechanistic materialists in history. Now, since this is put forth as a metaphysics, it encompasses everything, <coughs> and therefore including man, as I've just indicated. It follows, therefore, that man is governed by strict, rigid determinism. Determinism is implied by materialism because, of course, there's no mind to make any choices. And it's implied by mechanism since everything happens according to the laws of mechanics. So they're double determinists. They're the first orthodox, systematic, principled, self-conscious <coughs> determinists uh, in philosophic history. <coughs> Now, if you ask them, well, but don't you believe in any such thing as a mind or a soul? Uh, they say, oh, yes, we believe in a soul, but the soul is made of soul atoms. And uh, it's the presence of those particular atoms that uh, give rise to life and consciousness. I might mention they also believed in gods. Apparently, because people dreamed of gods, and at this primitive time, they thought if something appears to you in a dream, it must have some counterpart in reality. But the gods, they insisted, were also made of atoms. They eventually perished the same way human beings did. They had no divine characteristics. They were indifferent to men. And uh, at a certain point, their various atom atoms simply split up and went off in new combinations, and that was the end of the gods. So for practical purposes, atomists are atheists, although you will find that they believed in gods of an utterly unreligious and insignificant kind. <coughs> Now, the, <clears throat> the soul atoms, I stress, are completely physical. On this philosophy, you could have a good handful of soul. Soul atoms are fine, round, smooth, polished, mobile, they said. They are diffused throughout the world. When a cluster of them enter a combination of grosser atoms and start quivering, then you have a living, or if it's appropriately organized, a conscious entity. Consciousness is nothing but a quivering of the soul atoms. Periodically, you have a slight deficiency of them. A few of them exit. That's called going to sleep. Sometimes there's a sudden exodus during the day. That's fainting. <coughs> and at a certain point, all of them leave permanently. That's dying. Of course, there is no such thing as immortality on this philosophy. Death is disintegration, after which there is no you left at all. Your various atomic constituents wander off according to the laws of mechanics to take part in new combinations, and you are obliterated, and that's the end, since you are simply the combination. So much for the metaphysics of the atomists. What about their epistemology? <clears throat> well, I'll mention only one point here, uh, namely their attitude to the senses. You remember that Heraclitus thought the senses were invalid and distinguished between reality and appearance. And so on his own grounds did Parmenides and uh, the Pythagoreans. The senses deceive us. Well, the atomists hold the identical view. They uh, hold that you cannot rely on the senses. Why? Well, judging by the senses, it appears that things have colors. <clears throat> Nothing seems clearer to me than that this tablecloth is green. And yet, in reality, we know if this theory is correct, there are no colors. Green is a subjective effect on me. Nothing seems clearer than that this feels cool. And yet we know that there are no temperatures in reality. 
Nothing seems clearer than that I'm hearing a sound now, namely my own voice, but there are no sounds. And there are no tastes, and there are no textures. All there is is size, shape, and so on. Therefore, the senses are deceptive. Now, Democritus uses the, terms, the term convention to, uh, he copied that from the sophist school, to stand for anything which is a product of man's subjective constitution as against the actual facts of reality. The Greeks frequently contrasted what, what came from convention and what came from nature or reality. And using that terminology, Democritus says in a famous quotation, quote, by convention, sweet is sweet. By convention, bitter is bitter. By convention, hot is hot. By convention, cold is cold. By convention, color is color. But in reality, there are atoms in the void. That is, the objects of sense are supposed to be real, and it is customary to regard them as such. But in truth, they are not. Only the atoms in the void are real." Unquote. So the atomists subscribe to the same dichotomy between reality, known by reason, and appearance known by the senses. So they simply carry out the same thing that we've seen in many other uh, cases. And they too, therefore, are philosophically rationalists. Now, those of you who know any modern philosophy will know that this distinction of the atomists between what they call qualities and quantities, although it never went anywhere in the ancient and medieval world, was picked up at the time of the Renaissance by almost all the influential scientists and philosophers. It was picked up by and accepted by Galileo, Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, Locke. And Locke gave it its modern name. He called it, instead of calling it qualities versus quantities, he called it the primary versus the secondary qualities. The primary being the quantities, the secondary being the subjective effects on us, in his view. And it was also, by all these philosophers, made the basis for invalidating the senses. So we're going to encounter it again. Its source is the Greek atomist, and it's enormously influential when we get to modern philosophy. Now I'm going to leave it for now. It's a complex issue to untangle what is wrong with it. There are several different factors involved. And I'm going to present the objectivist view on this question in Lecture 12, at a time when you will be eager to know the answer if you're not already, because you will see the catastrophes that derive in the modern world from this distinction. But I suggest that you keep a list of issues I have promised to present the objectivist view on by the end of the course in Lecture 12. And number one is, what is wrong with the distinction between primary and secondary qualities? I do want to make one final comment before we leave atomism, however, about its metaphysics. Do not be misled by the primitive idea of atoms here, because in more sophisticated forms, this theory is enormously common today. It's all over the place, particularly among psychologists who are desperate to be regarded as scientific and who regard that as requiring that they be materialists. Uh, perhaps the arch example is B.F. Skinner, but there are many, many others. Uh, today, of course, they don't talk about soul atoms. Uh, but they talk, what they, what they agree with in, in relation to the atomists is the view that we can explain all human behavior without reference to mind or consciousness. Uh, we can simply do without consciousness, write it off as just the workings of matter. And then, of course, they all disagree among themselves whether the relevant parts of matter are genes or electric charges or 
SR stimulus response connections or reflexes or super reflexes, etc., and so on. But uh, that is all irrelevant philosophically. It's merely subtler forms of the Democritian theory. Philosophically, however, it is identical to Democritus. Scientifically, it's more sophisticated, but philosophically, it's identical. Now, as for what is wrong with mechanistic materialism as a philosophy, I'm going to have to refer you to some uh, readings if you're interested. I'd refer you first to Miss Rand's article on Skinner in the Ayn Rand letter. You can uh, look at a book by W.T. Jones, History of Western Philosophy, Volume 1, which has a chapter on atomism, which uh, presents um, uh, uh, many of the criticisms that are applicable to it. I could recommend a book by Bran Blanchard called The Nature of Thought, which has a very good chapter attacking and dissecting behaviorism, behaviorism being simply the name of mechanistic materialism as applied to modern psychology. And I might also recommend a book by J.B. Pratt called Matter and Spirit, which has many, many things wrong with it, but also has many, many good points uh, attacking materialism. Now, as a theory of physics, not metaphysics, but physics, me mechanistic materialism was a brilliant idea. And in fact, modern science began when somebody got the idea of combining Democritus with Pythagoras. That is, of looking for mechanistic laws which were mathematically formulatable. But they didn't get that till the Renaissance, as we'll see when we get there. But as a metaphysics, it is... Uh, completely invalid because it denies the existence of mind. And as such, it's immediately self-refuting, as its opponents have pointed out from antiquity to the present day. If there's no such thing as a mind <coughs> capable of observing evidence and reasoning according to the laws of logic, then every man's conclusions express nothing but blind mechanistic reactions. Each man is then a machine. He's a physical puppet guided by the laws of motion. His conclusions are dictated by factors such as the uh, density of his tongue, the viscosity of his saliva, the charges coursing through his nervous system, etc. He's a little billiard ball system, in effect, rattling and quivering by mechanistic necessity. No one on this philosophy, therefore, could ever claim to be guided by logic, by reason, by evidence, because there's no mind to grasp, to think, to relate the evidence. <coughs> How then is anyone to decide which of all the conflicting positions on all the different subjects is true? The situation is this. You rattle the way you have to rattle, and I quiver the way I have to quiver, and that's it. No one can say his position is knowledge, simply that that's the way he has to quiver. <clears throat> in other words, materialism entails skepticism, and in that respect is self-refuting. You couldn't even know that materialism was true if you didn't have a mind to acquire knowledge. Now, there are many other objections, and you can consult the book, the books that I mentioned. Uh, and if you wish, I would be very happy in the question period to expound at some length three or four random further objections to materialism if you want an arsenal of objections. But I'll wait for to be asked in the question period if you want. <coughs> All right, now let's leave the atomists <coughs> and go on to the second school for this evening, the sophists.
Now, the sophists, strictly speaking, were not so much a school as a professional class in the 5th century BC. Sophia, as you know, means wisdom. So, sophist, if you go by the etymology, is a wise man and knower. <coughs> However, what they knew and what they taught, if we put it briefly, was how to win friends and flatter the multitude and thereby gain political power in your particular city. They appealed above all to unscrupulous office seekers. And they taught them all the debating tricks, all the fallacies, all the confusing gimmicks that they could think of so that the aspiring uh, politician could bamboozle uh, his opponent. They were, in effect, like debased Dale Carnegie's on the <laughs> political level. Well, the result was that they acquired a bad name. Uh, uh, and the word sophist uh, has come to have its present negative connotations. I might say partly the name, the negative connotations are undeserved because they were held in opprobrium because they accepted money for teaching uh, philosophy, which was regarded as a breach of moral principle. Uh, and apparently still is by many universities. <coughs> <coughs> The main sophists were Protagoras, P-R-O-T-A-G-O-R-A-S. He's the father of sophism, 480 to 410 B.C. And Gorgias, G-O-R-G-I-A-S, who is 483 to 375 B.C. You may have heard of others such as Thrasymachus and Callicles, but the big two are Protagoras and Gorgias. Now, philosophically, the sophists are the first avowed skeptics in history, if we ignore Cratylus, who never would say anything. <coughs> and I've given you the definition of skepticism. No objective or certain knowledge is possible to anyone about anything. <coughs> Nothing can be known. Well, how, you ask, do they know this? What arguments do they put forth? Primarily, they base their skepticism on an all-out attack on the senses. Now, when I say all-out, I mean all-out. They claim to prove that every sense perception by any creature is necessarily invalid. Now, this is a much more sweeping argument than the Reader's Digest type. Uh, I mean by that than the obviously popular type. For instance, there is the argument from illusion. You know, you put a stick in water and it appears bent and it's really straight. And there is a certain mentality that derives from that the conclusion that therefore the senses are unreliable. Or there's the argument from <coughs> hallucinations. You know, you see a di dagger before you or pink rats uh, after having a drink and they aren't really there and there's a certain mentality that concludes from that that the senses are unreliable. Now those arguments are very poor arguments. Uh, they wouldn't stop anybody seriously for five minutes. Uh, the sophists were not above using those arguments, but that was not the essence of their case. Their case was a much more important argument. <coughs> it was an all-out attempt to show that every sense perception is wrong, not just that we can be taken in by an occasional illusion or hallucination, but that you can never trust anything from the senses. Why? Well, here is the famous argument. Whenever we perceive, what we perceive depends upon two factors. One, it depends upon the object being perceived. Now that much is obvious. If I look at a person, 
That's one object. And I'm going to have a different experience than if I look at a pitcher of water, and so on. If I listen to Rachmaninoff, I'm going to have a different experience than if I listen to Beethoven. I'm hearing a different object. That much is obvious. But the crucial point is point two. What you perceive, they say, depends not only on the object, but also on the nature of your sensory apparatus, the nature and condition of your sensory apparatus. Now, here there are many famous examples. <clears throat> the colorblind man and the man with normal vision look at the same rug. And one says it's red, the other says, no, it's gray. They're looking at the same object, but their experience is influenced by the type of sensory apparatus they have. You taste a piece of cherry pie, and it tastes sweet. You then develop a cold or smoke four packages of cigarettes and coat your tongue appropriately and taste it, and it tastes bitter. Same object. You look at the sun from the Earth, and it seems to be about the size of a 50-cent piece. You travel closer and closer to it, and it gets huger and huger. The size that you experience varies with the condition, in this case, your distance uh, of your perception. Uh, you take three beakers of water, the freezing cold one, the medium warm one, and the boiling hot one. And you have one person plunge his hand in the ice-cold one and then in the lukewarm one. And he says, oh, how warm. And you have another person plunge his hand in the boiling water and then into the same medium one, and he says, oh, how cold. Same object, different experience, the sophists say, because the sensory apparatus is different. Now you can do this with anyone, if you want, with any sensory quality. If you want an example, Put your finger gently, I stress gently, into your eye and press in, and you will see two of me. <laughs> now, uh, the sophists say, to elaborate beyond what they said, but the idea was, we can't go by majority rule in this question. What if there was a race of Martians, and they had their fingers tied into their eyes at birth? <laughs> so they saw two of everything. Now, would you say, the way to tell whether there's really one or really two is to take a population count. And if there's more Martians than us, there's two. And if there's more of us than the Martians, there's one. Obviously, that would be senseless. You can't go by majority rule in epistemology. What conclusion, then, do we come to? Who is right? Well, they said there's only one fair conclusion to come to. Nobody is right. Because nobody can ever perceive reality except as processed by his particular sensory apparatus. Nobody ever perceives reality directly. You can't just take your consciousness and wrap it around something. Impulses have to be given off, which go through your particular apparatus, and the kind of apparatus you have affects what you at the other end finally experience. Therefore, all we ever can know is the way reality appears to us because of our senses. And if we, our senses differ, the appearances differ. Therefore, we can never say, no one can ever say what is the case objectively in reality. All you can ever know about is what appears to you. And now, because tomorrow your senses may change. Put it another way, you never can say it is. You always must begin your sentences with, it seems to me, it appears to me. There is no way of knowing how things really are. All we know 
are our own subjective experiences, the private effects on each of us of the world out there. And since these effects vary from individual to individual, from species to species, from time to time, each of us lives in his own private subjective world. And we simply have to dispense with all talk about reality. Now, some of them went so far as to say, we may as well get rid of the whole idea of reality. How do you know there even is such a thing since you never perceive it? Others weren't quite so radical and they said, well, there is one, but what's the difference since it's unknowable anyway? Now, this is the most influential argument ever advanced against the validity of the senses. It's the only influential argument ever advanced against the validity of the senses. It was accepted in full by Plato, although rejected by Aristotle. Accepted by Plato and then, of course, by the whole Christian era, by almost all modern philosophers without exception. And in a blown-up, cosmic, gigantic form, it's the basis of Kant's whole philosophy. And therefore, it is urgently important that you know what is wrong with this argument. Now, please observe that two things are true and can't be contested. It is true that perception is impossible without sensory organs. And it is true that the type of organs you have in some way affect the type of experience you have. That much is true. Now, from those premises, Protagoras draws the conclusion you can never perceive reality. Now I ask you, what is wrong with his reasoning? Now I suggest you think about it. Add it to your list. That's number two in lecture 12. All right, where did the sophists go from here, having annihilated, in their view, at least the senses. <clears throat> well, you might say, what about reason? Couldn't reason give us knowledge of reality, even if the senses deceive us? Well, of course, the earlier rationalists would have taken exactly that position. And Plato subsequently will take that position. But the sophists do not. They hold the view that reason depends upon the evidence of the senses, which is quite correct. They're entirely correct on this point. And they say, therefore, if the senses give each of us only our own private subjective world, then our so-called rational conclusions are each of them true only for that private individual, only for his private world, are true only for him. Now, the arch mark of a sophist in today's world is anybody who puts the word for after the word true. There's two kinds of people. The people who say this is true, and people who say this is true for me, for you, for him, for her, for it, for us, for etc. As soon as the, anybody puts four on, that is the tip-off that he is a subjectivist, that he does not believe you can make a statement about reality, that everybody has his own private little world, and in your little world there might be a God, and therefore it's true for you, but in my little world there isn't, and therefore it's not true for me, and so on. Now, that goes back to the sophist viewpoint. Now, most people today can't even defend that viewpoint. The sophist at least derived it from an overall epistemology. Nor was that the only thing they held against reason, namely the deficiency of the sensory basis of it. They also put forth the argument which we can call the argument from disagreement. And the argument from disagreement is very simple. Everybody disagrees about what is rational. Who is to say what's really true? Thales says everything is water. 
Heraclitus says, no, it's fire and change. Parmenides says, oh, there is no change at all. Pythagoras says, you're all crazy, it's a world of numbers. And the atomists say, oh, no, it's little particles. And the sophists at this point come in and they say, now, look, this is hopeless. If human beings had a way of arriving at the truth, they would agree. If they don't agree, it must just simply go to show that reason is incapable of arriving at the truth. That argument, by the way, is enormously widespread, almost as widespread as it is fallacious. Uh, if you have any questions about it, I'll be glad to answer them in the question period, but I take for granted the obvious fallacy of it. And there's still a third thing they had against reason. Namely, they were followers of Heraclitus. So everything is constantly changing. Nothing, therefore, is an absolute. So even if by some miracle of good luck you hit on the truth, it wouldn't stay true for two seconds anyway. You see, nothing is true for two consecutive instances. So you can't even say simply, it seems. You have to say, it seems to me now. You see. <coughs> now, uh, uh, two famous statements uh, expressing this view. One is Protagoras' famous statement, the manifesto of subjectivism. Man is the measure of all things, of things that are that they are, and of things that are not that they are not. Now, by man there, he means each individual man subjectively. In other words, if you believe, if you feel that something is so, it is so for you now. And if you don't, it isn't for you now, and so on. That's the famous man is the measure of all things. And therefore, of course, it's complete subjectivism and complete relativism. There's no absolutes, there's no objective truth. And the even more succinct formulation comes from Gorgias who was the perfect example of a 20th century skeptic transplanted into ancient Greece. He wrote a book. Where they were all writing books on nature, on reality, on the nature of reality. So his book, in the true sophist tradition, was titled On Nature, subtitle, or The Non-Existent. <laughs> and it maintained three basic propositions. One, nothing exists. Two, if anything existed, you couldn't know it. Three, if you could know it, you couldn't communicate it. Now, that is what you call skepticism. <laughs> now, uh, it is useless to ask him, does he exist? Does he know the things that he claims? Has he communicated? There's no use asking him that because he'll say no. <laughs> He'll say, it's highly probable that nothing exists. And if you ask him, well, do you know that? He'll say, it's highly probable that it's highly probable that nothing exists, and so on and so on. That's what they used to call in the ancient world reduction to babbling. <laughs> and the skeptic would finally stand in the corner and simply say, it's highly probable that it's highly probable that it's highly probable, and so on. <laughs> Needless to say, as is true of all skeptics without exception, the sophists prided themselves on being enlightened. <coughs> on having escaped the superstition and the dogmas of the past, they said, we proudly know that you can't know anything, and we don't pretend to have any knowledge. Now, this is a historical cycle. You will see, and we are therefore at the end of an era, you will see that the whole history of philosophy is in cycles like this. A constructive era, collapsing into total skepticism, and then the beginning of a new one into a still deeper skepticism, in comparison to which even Gorgias seems to be 
a cognitive specialist. <laughs> and so on and so on. That, this has been repeated over and over again. There's a fascinating parallel to the history of certain countries which have a mixed economy. That is, there'll be a constructive period, a boom, and then a bust, a depression. And then another constructive period, frequently with inflated speculation, uh, following uh, upon which there is a more severe depression. And uh, that has been the entire pattern of the history of philosophy. And whenever you reach complete skepticism, you finish cycle one. And since people can't live by it, that is the time when a new philosopher of great importance always appears, because he is the one who tells mankind what to do now. Now, I simply say that uh, in the 20th century, skepticism reached and has now reached the most intense level ever, which augurs well for uh, the future of a new constructive period. Now let us turn in conclusion to the ethics or morality of the sophists, because they had very definite views on this question. Well, can ethics come from reason? Obviously not. Reason is deficient. Can it come from God? Obviously not. Now remember, the sophists, as good skeptics, are not atheists. Atheists claim to know something for certain, namely that there's a, no God. The skeptics are agnostics. The sophists are agnostics. They don't know one way or the other whether there's a God. <coughs> but in any event, they don't know that he does exist, so he's no good for ethics. Well, the question is, where does ethics come from then? It can't come from reality. It can't come from God. And their answer is very simple. It doesn't. It comes from nowhere. There is no objective ethics. There is no basis for it, no source of it, and man has no cognitive faculty to grasp it. Therefore, they are, as you would expect, complete ethical subjectivists and complete ethical relativists. Man is the measure of all things, including of all things that are good. You say to them, uh, but don't you recognize certain virtues that man should follow? Answer, virtue is an arbitrary social convention. Their position is, if you feel that something is good, and by something I mean anything, whether it's uh, having an ice cream cone or massacring a continent. If you feel that it's good or right, it is good for you now. All desires are ethically equal because there's nothing to go by except arbitrary desires and passions. If they were starting out their ethics uh, systematically, the first proposition would be, I want it, whatever it happens to be. And if you say to them, well, what about facts or reality? Of course, the answer will be, who knows anything about facts or reality? <clears throat> if you say, shouldn't your desires be rational? The answer would be, what's rational for you isn't rational for me. Man is the measure. And so we have an ethics, putting it in objectivist terminology, of avowed whim worshiping. And according to the later sophists, particularly, the more intense your whims, your arbitrary desires, the better. The ideal life, they said, is first you should burn with passionate, arbitrary desire of any kind at all, and then go out and satisfy it by any means at all. All desires and all means of satisfying them are equally valid. Live by your desires. They said that's what is the natural element in you. That's what's given you by nature by reality, you see. 
all the talk and argument and reasoning and philosophy and so on, that is simply artificial. That is conventional. That's simply society's arbitrary dictates. And so they are profoundly anti-intellectual, as they would have to be, considering the intellect to be uh, completely impotent. And they believe that the way to achieve morality, uh, as they construe it, is simply express your passions, a view which has been adopted intact by many schools of contemporary psychotherapy. Uh, exactly this same view, only instead of saying this is the way to be moral, they say this is the way to be uninhibited and healthy. Now the later sophists added in another point to this view. Because the question came up, well what happens if your desires conflict with somebody else's desires and you have to deal with other human beings? What do you do then? And the answer was, smash him with a club before he smashes you. <laughs> in other words, there's only one method of dealing with other men and that is brute physical force. It's useless to try to argue with men or convince them by reason. For obvious reasons, reason is helpless. The only argument is a club. This is particularly, Thrasymachus in particular is famous for this view. It's the first time we've had in philosophy the view that might makes right. Now they said there's only one trouble with what people call immorality, like lying, cheating, robbing, raping, murdering, etc. The only trouble is you get caught. <laughs> But suppose, they said, you could put on a veneer of virtue. You know, you could join some appropriate charitable organizations and some clubs and so on, so it looked like you were a good law-abiding citizen. And you make appropriate sacrifices at uh, religious uh, temples, and therefore you bribe the gods. Suppose you could put on this outer covering of vice, they said, and at the same time live a subterranean life, uh, outer covering of virtue, and at the same time live a subterranean life of roaring vice. Well, they said that would be terrific. You would then have the best of both worlds, the rewards of virtue, the social approval, and the pleasures of, of uh, vice. Or if you can't do that, they said, what about trying to become a dictator? Get a big police and military on your side, and then you don't have to worry about any retaliation. And they went on. This is not simply our theory. All men are like this. This is human nature. Why then uh, do most men say you shouldn't live this way? Why does society say you shouldn't cheat and rob and kill and rape? And their answer was, society is a hypocrite. Society is a coward. The people that make up society secretly lust after just this kind of life, but they're afraid. They figure if they do this and they start the law, the rule, uh, slaughter other people to get what you want, somebody's going to do it to them and beat them to the punch. And therefore, they get together and they say, let's compromise. I'll give up what would be the ideal life of killing you if you give up what would be the ideal life of killing me, and so we'll follow these rules. But they said, as society does this strictly out of fear, cowardice, and hypocrisy, therefore, not out of conviction. Every man would run riot like a whim-worshipping sophist, if he thought he could get away with it. Now, the famous story illustrating this is told by Plato, who, of course, profoundly opposes the sophists. And it's the story of the Ring of Gyges, G-Y-G-E-S, a mythical character, but uh, uh, simply used as like a parable to illustrate a point. Gyges was a shepherd uh, who had a, uh, discovered a ring. 
And this ring had the magical power that when you turned the stone to the ground, you became invisible. So it was like an anticipation of H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. And uh, the sophists uh, say, if you had the magic ring of Gyges, life would be magnificent. You could then run riot. You could do anything you wanted, satisfy all desires, and you would be uh, in a perfect state. And they say everyone is like that. That's the way people are. And the only question is, do you have the courage, in effect, to approximate this condition, or are you going to be a coward? Now, if I could just read you for a moment from Plato's presentation of this view. His dialogues, of course, uh, represent different views that he tries to answer, but this is a famous description by Thrasymachus uh, speaking in Plato's dialogue of the myth of Gyges, the ring of Gyges. I'll just read you an excerpt from it. Suppose there were two such magic rings, and one were given to the just man, the other to the unjust. No one, it is commonly believed, would have such iron strength of mind as to stand fast in doing right or keep his hands off other men's goods when he could go to the marketplace and fearlessly help himself to anything he wanted, enter houses and sleep with any woman he chose, set prisoners free and kill men at his pleasure, and in a word go about among men with the powers of a god. The so-called just man would behave no better than the other. Both would take the same course. Surely this is strong proof that men do right only under compulsion. No individual thinks of it as good for him personally, since he does wrong whenever he thinks he has the power. Uh, granted full license to do as he liked, people would think a man a miserable fool if he refused to wrong his neighbors or to touch their belongings, though in public they keep up a pretense of praising his conduct for fear of being wronged themselves. So much for that. And then they go on to say that you have to become a real skilled expert in injustice, however, so that you can get away with it. Now, this viewpoint is given a philosophic name, and it is called egoism. It is called egoism because the sophists certainly do not preach that you should sacrifice for God or for others. And they say you should achieve your own advantage. And that should be your only goal. Now, you see, it is egoism. Uh, I mean, you'd have to classify it as that as against altruism or sacrifice for God or some other type of theory. But it is egoism which is thoroughly relativist, skeptical, and subjectivist. And uh, one of the worst errors, uh, one of the worst tragedies of Western philosophy is that egoism at its inception was tied to these other views. The result is that uh, ever since, egoism has been associated with two cardinal points. One, with whim-worshipping, with the idea that the egoist is the man who arbitrarily follows his subjective passions wherever they lead him. And two, brutality, the idea that an egoist is someone who tramples over others. And you see, uh, uh, arbitrary whim-worship and brutality are all that's left when you abandon reason. Uh, and since the sophists were egoists who abandoned reason, they gave uh, the first to give egoism the image and the concept that it has to this day in many people's minds. Now, there were exceptions. Aristotle is an egoist of a radically different kind. But it was to the interest of the centuries of Christianity to ignore the existence of Aristotle and uh, to present sophism as the only concept of egoism. And so, of course, in the mass media today, if someone is referred to as selfish, that is simply taken as a synonym, that he is a, uh, a brute 
uh, 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 a worshiper. But uh, I believe that uh, to this audience, no comment on that is necessary. Now, this is the sort of position that Plato is going to try to answer and tell us what is wrong. Above all, he was concerned to answer the sophists. Now, let us just say a few words before the break on, just so we can say we got started on our main subject for tonight and next week, Socrates and Plato. The two philosophers who set out to answer the sophists, to ground objective knowledge and objective morality, and between them they founded the first complete philosophy, the first complete system, including an integrated presentation in metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, politics, aesthetics. So we finally passed the era of fragments and of simply background and reached the beginning of the new constructive era. And first, a few words about Socrates. His dates are 470 to 400 BC. It is very difficult to separate him from Plato because Socrates left no writings. He is known primarily through Plato's dialogues. And how much of those dialogues is historically accurate and how much are words that Plato put into Socrates' mouth after Socrates died, uh, it's impossible to say exactly. You can find commentators and interpreters who range from one extreme to the other, who say on the one, some of them say there was no such person as Socrates. He was a myth invented by Plato and Xenophon. Other people say there was no such thinker as Plato. He was just a secretary who took down what Socrates had to say. <laughs> but I think in this particular case, moderation is the best policy. And I agree with the standard uh, viewpoint, which is that the early dialogues of Plato, written when he was young, represent the historical Socrates on the whole, and the so-called middle and later dialogues of Plato represent Plato. But it doesn't really make any difference because if you want to get around this problem, call it the Socratic hyphen Platonic philosophy. And don't bother to apportion credit or blame. Now, but if we interpret Socrates in this way, his interest was basically in ethics uh, rather than in metaphysics. <coughs> he was the first major moralist of the Western world, Socrates a champion of absolute objective ethics, an arch-opponent of the sophists. Now, he did not have a complete system of ethics himself, but he had a number of characteristic ethical ideas and approaches which were picked up and developed subsequently by Plato and by Aristotle in different ways. And next week, we'll look at some of these typical Socratic ethical tenets in connection with our discussion of Plato's ethics. But tonight, I want to say a few words about Socrates' method of philosophizing in order to acquaint you with a discovery of his, a very fundamental one, of an epistemological kind, which is indispensable background for Plato. Now, Socrates employed, obviously, the Socratic method. In other words, the conversational method, the question and answer method. <coughs> In essence, he would call her some uh, unsuspecting Athenian, usually of a pompous and ignorant kind, but who thought he knew a lot. He'd call him at his home or in the marketplace. He would engage the man in uh, philosophic conversation. He would ask what seemed to be perfectly innocuous questions, and he would get unthought out, uh, apparently obvious answers, and then he would begin to reason and say, well, now, if you said this, wouldn't this follow? And the man would say, yes. And then wouldn't this follow? Yes. And what about this? And the man begins to feel quite uneasy because 
He doesn't want to say that, but he doesn't see how he could get out of it, given what he said. And in not too long a time, the man was stopped completely. The tradition was he was rendered entirely speechless and couldn't utter a word. Now, Socrates' motive, apparently, was that he had a divine mission. And his mission was to be a gadfly, a philosophical gadfly, to rouse people from their unthinking, complacent slumbers. He was not a skeptic. He was not a skeptic. But he was concerned to make people really think and question their hasty assumptions and their unthought-out ideas and their conventional uh, bromides and their sloppy formulations. His famous line in this connection is, the unexamined life is not worth living. The result, unfortunately, of his method of procedure was that he was highly unpopular in Athens. <laughs> he made many powerful enemies, particularly because a band of young men followed him around eating up the spectacle of him demolishing the prominent citizens. <laughs> One member of that band was Plato. Now you probably know, you must know the consequences of it all. He was arrested, charged with corrupting the youth and worshipping false gods. He was brought to trial, famous trial. He was asked to defend himself and he refused to concede that he had done anything wrong at all. <coughs> the custom of the time was that uh, the prosecutor and the defendant were each to propose a penalty, and then the court voted on which penalty uh, should be given. The prosecutor demanded death. Socrates was asked, what penalty do you propose? And he said he thinks that the only appropriate uh, result of his action was that he should be kept in luxury to the end of his days by the state for the service he has rendered them. Uh, needless to say, the court voted for death by hemlock and uh, that was subsequently administered. So he is the first philosophic martyr. If you want to read his story, it's contained in three dialogues of Plato. The Apology, which is his trial, Socrates' trial. The Crito, which is the episode in which a friend of Socrates comes and tries to get him to escape uh, from the jail, which would have been possible after the sentence had been proposed, but before it was carried out. And Socrates refuses on moral grounds that this was the will of the people. And although he disagrees with them, he believes that he is morally obligated to obey the law of the people. And then the third dialogue, the uh, Phaedo, in which uh, the last hours of Socrates are recounted, and it ends with him drinking the hemlock and becoming paralyzed. Now the question is, what did he find in his philosophic method that uh, was so crucial? Let's take the break here, and uh, we will give you the answer after the break. Now, what did Socrates find out? Well, he found in the course of his discussions with people that the reason that people were so confused, so unclear, so chronically in disagreement and collapsing into subjectivism and skepticism was that their concepts were unclear, that their concepts were undefined. They would argue, for instance, is a uh, certain man just or not? And they'd argue back and forth vigorously on this question without any definition of justice. And he asked, how could you possibly resolve this dispute objectively without a definition? The sophist would say, well, it's a matter of opinion. For me, he's just. For you, he isn't. Socrates would say, you can't ask the question until you have a definition of justice. You have to know what is common to just men 
just actions, just governments, that makes them just. Once you have this definition, then there's no difficulty in applying it in a particular case. Once we know the definition of our concepts, we can resolve all disputes in particular cases. And this, of course, is true not only of justice, but of all such cases. Is a given country a democracy? Well, there's no use arguing until you know what is a democracy. And once you know, it's very easy to answer. Are you in love? No way to answer unless you know what is love. What is common to all instances of love? Once you know, easy enough to answer. And same for what is religion, what is courage, etc. In discovering the importance of the need for definitions, to that extent, Socrates is the father of definition. He did not use the term, he didn't give the rules, he simply discovered the urgent need of them. Now let us pursue this. What do you want when you ask for a definition? Well, you want a statement of the characteristics that are common to some class. You want those characteristics possessed by every member of the class, in virtue of which they're members of that class and not some other. When you define, you don't concentrate on one particular example. You don't try simply to describe it. What you do is concentrate on what's common to a whole group of particulars. So, for instance, if you're trying to define triangularity, you don't make an exhaustive study of one triangle on the blackboard and say, well, it's white and it's three inches uh, hypotenuse and it has a right angle and so on. You survey all triangles in your mind and you think, now what is it that's common to them all on the basis of which we classify them as triangles? Now, to introduce terminology that didn't come into existence until later, but is appropriate here, you concentrate when you want a definition not on particulars, but on universals. Now, by universal, we mean here something very specific. We mean that set of properties which is common to every member of a class and which is the basis of a classification. We do not mean universal truths like the law of gravity. We mean universals in the sense of universals, properties running through a class. Uh, let me give you some examples. I point to one book and another book and another book. Those are three particulars. What is the universal? Well, that set of properties common to all books on the basis of which we call them books. And if you want a single word for the universal, in English you have to usually put a suffix on it. You have to say like bookness or bookhood, which is pretty bad. Um, uh, uh, if you want uh, to use the way the Greeks talked about it, you would talk about the idea of book or the essence of book or the universal book. And the same, of course, applies to people. But it, and it applies to every time you have a classification. For instance, I move my hand. That is one particular in the realm of motion. And you moved your head, and that's another particular. And the Earth moves around the sun, and that's another particular. What is the common, what is the universal? Motion. Or, I point to this shade of green, that's a particular. And that shade of green is a particular. And that shade of green is a particular particular quality. And what's common to them all? Greenness. That would be the universal. And it applies to relationships. This cup is on top of the desk. My body is on top of the stage. 
This floor is on top of the preceding one. And what is the universal? Well, if you wanted to coin a grotesque word, you'd say it's on top of hood. Or on the relation of one thing being above another, you see. Now, what Socrates established was that the crucial problem of human knowledge was the knowledge of universals. Wherever we have a word, we have a universal except for proper nouns. John Smith is not a universal, that's a particular. Unless you're using Smith to mean someone engaged in a certain occupation with a small s, and then, of course, it's a universal. Now, Socrates believed, and Plato believed, and Aristotle believed, that the thing that made man distinctive from the animals, everything that was distinctive about him derived from his ability to grasp universals. They said that's what it means to say man is a rational being. He can abstract. He can grasp common denominators. He can conceptualize. He can classify. And therefore, he can generalize. He can grasp laws. He can apply to all the other particulars he's never encountered, the information he gets from merely some particulars. He can predict the future. He can satisfy his desires and control his environment. But if you take away that one crucial capacity, the ability to grasp universals, you're left with animals who merely are able to perceive particulars and react to them, but can't abstract universals, and therefore can't draw conclusions, can't formulate principles, and are comparatively helpless. A dog, for instance, likes a bone. He likes a number of bones. Now the question is, why doesn't it occur to him to start a bone store? Or to start a science of bones, bonology? And find out where the bones come from and how do you get them? And the trouble is, the poor dog can't get the idea of boneness, you see. He gets this bone and then the next one, he forgot the first one, and then the next one, and so on. And so. His problem is he's uh, enmeshed in the particulars and he can't rise to universals. So Socrates, uh, putting it in more modern terminology, was the one who really discovered for the first time in the West the importance of conceptual as distinct from perceptual knowledge. And conceptual knowledge was knowledge of common denominators, knowledge of universals. If we can validate knowledge of universals, said Socrates, then the sophists would be answered. We have no difficulty answering the sophists. Because the sophists go around arguing, what should this man do? What should he not do? They never solve the problem. They say it's all subjective. What's wrong? They don't ask, what is man? Man as such now. What kind of a being is he? What characteristics are common to all men and peculiar to them, on, in virtue of which they are men? The sophists say, well, men vary, circumstances vary. And it's true men vary, but man remains the same. And if we didn't restrict ourselves to simply perception of particulars, if we focused on the universal, or the essence, which is essentially a synonym for the universal here, then we would have means to answer questions about individual men. In other words, human beings have to rise to the conceptual stage. Once we grasp universals conceptually and see particulars as simply instances or examples of them, we will have universal standards, universal definitions, and we'll end all our disagreements and our subjectivism. So to talk about validating human knowledge is to talk about acquiring knowledge of universals. 
That is essentially the legacy left by Socrates in epistemology. Although he did not use any of that terminology, universal, particular, definition, etc., are all later terms. Now let's pick up Plato. 427 to 347 BC. <clears throat> One of Socrates' disciples, as I said. He wrote a great deal. A lot of it is lost uh, to us. What we have is primarily, aside from some letters, a series of dialogues, 20-odd dialogues. He wrote in that form in order to reproduce and perpetuate the conversational method of his master. You know, of course, that Plato founded the first university of the Western world, the Academy, and therefore his followers were frequently called in the ancient world the academics from uh, Academy. Its motto was supposed to be emblazoned over the, the uh, doors of it, let no one ignorant of geometry enter here, which can suggest to you already the influence of Pythagoras on Plato. His major work in terms of popular and uh, known by just about everybody is the Republic. Now, Plato, to do him credit in advance, is undoubtedly one of the two most influential philosophers of all time, the other being Aristotle. He is the first great philosophic genius in human history. And I say that deliberately and advisedly, not from the perspective of the truth of his ideas or even the rationality of them, because uh, uh, objectivism disagrees entirely with Platonism, with its conclusions and its approach. But he is nevertheless one of the greatest geniuses philosophically in three ways. In his abstract ability, uh, which was superlatively greater than everyone else in the history of thought but, but for Aristotle. In his originality, he was the man essentially who created philosophy from the tentative bits and suggestions that I've given you so far. And in his power of systematic integration, he was the first to put it all together into a comprehensive view of man, of reality, of knowledge, of life, of ethics, of politics, of art. Uh, and this is an achievement uh, uh, not to be underestimated. Now, Plato was in complete agreement with Socrates' view that the crucial knowledge needed for man was a knowledge of universals. He himself, however, drew metaphysical conclusions from this that Socrates, as far as we can tell, did not. Now, I want to follow Plato here step by step because this is the most crucial part of his philosophy. It's the basis of his distinctive, world-famous, staggeringly influential metaphysics. Well, we start with the premise then that universals must be knowable. Otherwise, we're going to be back in the position of the animals and the sophists. <laughs> well, if universals must be knowable, we can conclude one thing right away. They must actually exist. They must be real. Because Parmenides has made it perfectly clear that thou canst not know what is not. And therefore, if universals are real, uh, are knowable, they must be real. They must exist. Which raises the question, where do they exist? How do they exist? Now for Plato, this is a grave problem. It was later called, for perfectly obvious reasons, the problem of universals. Now you might say in advance, you don't see any problem. And since I have to get you to see a problem to understand Plato, let me tell you what is probably on your mind. You probably think like this. You say universals 
exist in particulars. Madness, you would say, for instance, is merely a name for all the similar characteristics possessed by individual men. You would say, of course, madness is not something over and above individual men, as though you have Tom, Dick, and Harry, etc., and then another one called madness. And so you say, where's the problem? When you're thinking about universals, you are really thinking about particulars from a certain point of view. Now, Plato says, no, this is wrong, not true. He is proposing to argue that universals and particulars have radically different characteristics and therefore must, in logic, be radically different kinds of things. Universals cannot simply be names for aspects of particulars. That's what he's going to argue for. But his method here is like this. How do you know that Smith and Jones are two different people? Suppose somebody said Smith is just a name for parts of Jones. You'd say, well, look, I know that Smith and Jones are two different people because uh, Smith is a plumber, Jones is a philosopher. Smith is rich, Jones is poor, etc. Make a... <laughs> Make a list of all the different characteristics, and you say they have to be two different, completely different entities because they have completely opposite characteristics. Well, Plato proposes to do exactly that with universals and particulars. He's going to find a whole list of differences, complete opposites, on every count, and he's going to say, how, therefore, could universals possibly be a name for groups of particulars when they're completely opposite? There must then be two worlds, is the conclusion we're going to come to a world which has the characteristics of particulars, and another one which has the characteristics of universals. Well, how do these differ? How do universals and particulars differ? And there are four points, at least, that Plato makes. To begin with, remember the Greeks were fascinated with multiplicity. So let's look at the question from the point of view of multiplicity, of the one and the many. How many particulars are there in a given class? How many men, for instance? Well, obviously, millions. And if we don't bother to quantify, we'll call them just many. How many universals are there in that class? How many madnesses? Well, says Plato, obviously, one. How many triangles, particular triangles? Endless number, many. How many triangularities? Obviously, only one. Suppose you proved a theorem about triangularity, about all triangles, in other words, and somebody said to you, well, that's true of this triangularity, but it's not true of that one. You would look at him baffled and say, what do you mean? There aren't two triangularities. There's only one. The universal is what's common to all the different particulars. It is the unifying common denominator. It is, if we hark back to the early phrase, the one in the many. So you can put down on your list under universals, one per category. Under particulars, many. Now we go on to the next point. The Greeks were not only fascinated with multiplicity, but with change. What about the contrast between universals and particulars from the point of view of change? Well, says Plato, particulars are obviously changing. They come into existence. They hang around for a while, they decay, they grow old, they rot, and they pass out of existence. In fact, he believes with Heraclitus that particulars are changing all the time in every respect at every instant. 
that this world is a stream of Heraclitian flux. He agrees with Heraclitus having learned that through Cratylus. But universals, he says, are unchanging. They are eternal, indestructible, immutable. Well, how does he defend that? Well, think of the idea of madness, or the idea of triangularity, or anyone that you want. We are able to formulate unvarying laws. We can say man requires self-esteem by the very nature of man. And this is an immutable law. Now, how would that be possible unless madness, the thing the law is about, were immutable, unless it were unchanging? Or we can say triangles must have an angle sum of 180 degrees. How is that possible unless, as an immutable law, unless there's such a thing as immutable triangularity? And so Therefore, when we think of a universal, says Plato, we're not thinking of particulars, because particulars change in every aspect. But universals go on unchanged. That's point two. And now point three. Think of it from the point of view of the constitution of the two. Particulars are primarily material or physical. Animals can see them, hear them, taste them. But what about universals? Are they accessible to animals? Can you see manness or boneness? Obviously not. The dog can see bones, but it can't see boneness. So boneness is somehow abstract. It's non-physical. And that's proved by the fact that we can grasp it by the senses. So we have another contrast. Something non-physical, that's universals. Something physical, that's particulars. And fourthly, as a consequence of that, how do we know the two different things? Particulars, by means of our senses. Universals, by, not by means of the senses, but the mind, the reason, the intelligence, the thinking capacity, the intellect. Well, says Plato, the conclusion to draw is inescapable. How can we deny that there are two different worlds? On the one hand, a world in which there is one universal per category, unchanging, non-material, knowable only by the mind, and the other, a world of multiple changing physical sensory particulars. They're not the same. One can't be explained as simply a name for the other. And yet we know that universals must exist. They must be real. Conclusion, there must be two worlds. There must be two realms, the world of universals and the world of particulars, QED. That's argument one. Now, there are many arguments for this metaphysics in Plato. If you want to give them names, that's names that I made up, but they'd be helpful if you're taking notes. You can call this first one the argument from the differences between universals and particulars. Now, there are a legion of arguments in Plato. I'll give you three more. Different arguments, all leading to the same conclusion from different aspects. You can call the second one, I'm giving you these in no, not in Plato's order, but just in the order that it's most convenient for exposition. Call the second one the argument from perfection. And this one begins. Where do we get our concepts and standards of perfection? In any category. Now, Plato primarily uses mathematical and ethical examples here, like the perfect uh, 
triangle or the perfectly just man, but it applies to any category. A perfect straight line, a perfect uh, government, a perfect banana, a perfect uh, inner spring mattress, you name it. Where do we get our concepts of perfection from? Well, you might say by seeing individual perfect instances and then uh, abstract it. Plato says, no, you could not have got your concept of perfection by this means because nothing in this world is perfect. Nothing in this world is perfect. A fundamental principle of Plato's philosophy. There is no such thing as perfection in this world. Why not? Well, he says that's proved by the fact that things in this world change. If a thing changes, it couldn't be perfect. Because if it was perfect, it would simply stand still. It would lack nothing. Take, for instance, a man. Suppose a man was perfect. He lacked nothing. He's completely perfect. Well, then, he wouldn't have to eat. He doesn't lack food. He wouldn't have to go to school. He doesn't lack knowledge. He wouldn't have to breathe. He doesn't lack air. He'd simply be the way the Christian Jewish God is supposed to be. He'd just sit there motionless because he's already perfect, you see. On the other hand, if things change, that means they lack something. They're imperfect. They have to grow and develop, etc. They are not perfect. Even in mathematics, the Platonists say you'll never find perfection. Now, you know the standard example. You, do you ever see a perfect straight line? And the Platonists will say no. If you look at the most beautiful straight line through a microscope, you see little wiggles. So it's not perfectly straight. And even as a side from that, the Platonists will say you've never actually seen a perfect triangle. In fact, they'll go further. You've never even seen a triangle of any kind. Now, if I put on the blackboard, if we had one here, a triangle, you'd say, isn't that a triangle? And the Platonists would say, no, it is not. A triangle is defined as a plane figure bounded by three straight lines. Now, what I have on the board is not a line. A line is simply extension in one dimension. It's a three-dimensional uh, phenomenon. It comes out from the board a certain distance, and it has a certain thickness. So if it was to be simply a line, which is how a triangle is defined, we'd have to erase the chalk from the board to get rid of the thickness, and we'd have to erase the width of it, and of course we'd have left nothing. In other words, we don't have not only a perfect triangle, we don't even have a triangle. What we have is a crude approximation of a triangle, which is not a sensory phenomenon, according to Plato. So, if you can't get it in mathematics, you can't get it anywhere. But, what do we then uh, conclude? We must have got our concepts of perfection from somewhere, because we have those concepts. We criticize things as imperfect, and the fact that we say something is imperfect presupposes that we know in some way what would perfection consist of. So we have a knowledge of what perfection consists of, and yet we couldn't have got it from this world. Well then, from where? Well, Plato says we must have got it from contemplating another world. A world which contains the perfect embodiment of everything in this world. A world of perfect archetypes or universals. Now notice that whenever we think of a universal, or at least typically, you usually have a perfect, unblemished representative in mind. If I say, think of man, well, to most of you at least, uh, John Galt will come to mind and not some welfare recipient. <laughs> if you say university, 
with all due allowances for deterioration, you probably think of Harvard and not of a teacher's college in Tennessee. You say the human body, you think of an Olympic athlete and not some broken down Hulk, etc. So uh, the association between the universal and the perfect is very firm, very strong, and Plato cashes in on it to conclude that the world of perfection that we need is precisely the world of universals. And he concludes, therefore, there must be a world of perfect universals, which we have contemplated at some time prior to this life, thereby gaining our standards and knowledge of perfection, and thereby, by contrast, being able to say that the things in this world are imperfect. Now notice, therefore, we've not only established by this particular argument the world of universals, but two other things. We've established innate ideas, knowledge possessed in us at birth, because we had to be born with this knowledge of perfection. Since we have it, and as he claims to have proved, we couldn't have acquired it during this life. So it had to come from another world, and that means we had to have knowledge at birth. So we've laid the first groundwork for the theory of innate ideas in epistemology. And, in regard to another point, we've proved that the soul must be independent of the body. Because the soul must have been in this other world apart from and prior to the formation of the body. And, therefore, we've laid the groundwork to establish the immortality of the soul. So this argument brings in a whole bunch of Platonic themes. All right, let's turn to argument three which I call the argument from the order of knowledge. And it takes off from the question, which in logic would you have to learn first? Would you have to know first? Universals or particulars? Now you might think, well, first you know particulars, and then you arrive at universals by abstraction from what they have in common. Plato says, absolutely wrong. He says it's impossible to know particulars, to classify them, to categorize them unless you knew universals in advance. And he goes into an elaborate criticism of the theory that you arrive at universals by a process of abstraction. Now, the advocate of abstraction, which is essentially the Aristotelian view, says the way you arrive at particular, and I'll give Aristotle perfectly good hearing when we get to him, but for now, I'm doing my best by Plato. The advocate of the uh, view that you arrive at universals by abstraction from particulars says, if you want to define justice, for instance, or arrive at a knowledge of justice in general, the way to do it is collect before your mind all the particular instances of justice, or at least a great many, and then abstract and see what they have in common. To which Plato says this is an impossible thing to do, because if you didn't know what justice was in advance, how would you know what was a particular instance of it? How would you know what things to collect together and perform the abstraction from? How would you know what particulars to group together? Now, says Plato, we have a real tricky question here. To define a universal, we have to assemble the instances before us. For instance, in the case of justice, and then grasp what's common. But we're in this position. If we knew in advance what was common, if we already knew, we would never have to inquire, because we know that all definitions in advance. If we don't know in advance, then we have no idea how to inquire, because we don't know what particulars to collect or group together. Suppose I told you, go out and find the definition of gloop. 
and you say how? I say find all the particular groups and then abstract what they have. <laughs> say that's ridiculous. I don't know what to look for. So Plato says we're in this paradoxical position. Somehow we have to know universals in advance to be able to organize particulars. And yet we don't know them in advance. Otherwise, we would simply be able, if we did, we'd simply be able to whip off the answers. And we obviously don't. We have to know and not know. And how is that possible? Well, he says, there's only one solution. There must again be a realm of universals, independent of this world, which we knew before this life. Of course, here he's relying on the Pythagorean wheel of birth reincarnation idea. It must be the case that we were born with innate knowledge of all these universals. So in a certain sense, we're born omniscient. We know every category and all the relationships, which means all the laws. And in that sense, we do have all knowledge. But the knowledge in it is unconscious when we're born. It's deep in our subconscious, to use modern terms. And you have to go through a special process, which I'll tell you about next week, to unearth it. And therefore, in a sense, yes, we are born with it, in the uh, sense that we have it. But in a sense, no, we're not. We have to unearth it by a deliberate process. In any event, the point is proved. There must be a world of universals, and we must have had knowledge of it in some form prior to this life. Otherwise, we would simply gape like animals at particulars and have no idea how to proceed. And now the last argument that I'll look at. The argument from the possibility of knowledge. Knowledge must be possible. Knowledge of reality. That's Plato's basic premise. And the question, therefore, is what must reality be like if knowledge is to be possible? And here he simply draws the final conclusions of all his predecessors. Heraclitus had said, you cannot know a world that's changing, or rather Heraclitus' followers, like Cratylus, had said, you can't know a world of flux. But this world is a world of flux. Plato says, true enough. Therefore, if reality is to be knowable, it must be immutable. That means another world. Heraclitus and Parmenides had both said, if a world is changing, then it's contradictory. And you can't know the contradictory because it is and it isn't. And Plato says, true enough, if a world is to be knowable, it must be made of consistent entities. And that means entities which don't change, given that he accepts Parmenides and Heraclitus, and therefore, again, an immutable other world. And the sophist had said, knowledge acquired by the senses is invalid. It's subjective. It's not of reality. Plato agrees. Therefore, he says, if we are to have knowledge of reality, it must be knowledge that's acquired by a non-sensory means. And if it's acquired by a non-sensory means, it must be of a non-material object. Because material objects could be known in theory by the senses. And if this has to be the kind of world that's inaccessible to the senses, it must be non-material. Socrates had said the crucial thing to know is universals. And universals happen to have all the characteristics that the world that's knowable has to have. They're immutable, self-consistent, motionless, non-material. The conclusion must therefore be, if there's to be knowledge of reality at all, if that's to be possible, it must be of 
a world of universals, not of this world. And therefore, you see, Pythagoreanism wins out in Plato. There is two worlds. Knowledge, true knowledge, is knowledge of the other world. Only now, it's not the world of numbers, but numbers are just one small constituent. It's the world of universals, which include numbers and everything else uh, that has uh, uh, any instances actual or possible. I may say in his very late life, there's reason to believe that Plato himself reverted to pure Pythagoreanism and converted the universals back into numbers. But uh, that is not what he is famous for. So uh, we'll treat him as a Platonist. I mean, as that's understood. <laughs> so Plato thought he had the final answer to all the problems of the skeptics. The Heraclitians had said, this world is a world of flux and we can't speak or acquire knowledge of it. Plato said, true enough, but there is an immutable, knowable world, the world of universals. The Heraclitian, it says, this world is contradictory and constantly, because it's constantly changing, Plato said, true enough, but there is a non-contradictory reality, the motionless world of universals. The Heraclitian sophist said, we can't rely on the senses, and Plato said, true, but there's a non-material world we can know by non-sensory means. A supernatural realm of universals, this is Plato's solution to the problems of earlier philosophy. There are, therefore, two worlds. The world of universals, also given a variety of names, sometimes called the world of essences, which we in this course will use as synonymous with universal. It's frequently called the world of forms with a capital F. It's frequently called the world of ideas, platonic ideas with a capital I. It's frequently called the intelligible world because it's the world that you grasp by intelligence, by the mind. And as against that, there's the world of particulars or the physical world, or the sensible world, as it's called, that being the world you grasp by the senses. Now here is a kind of full-fledged overview description of the differences between the two worlds. The first thing to grasp is that universals for Plato are entirely different from two things. They're entirely different from the particulars in this world. They're independent of the particulars in this world. And they are independent of our thoughts. If you wiped out all of our thoughts about madness, that would not touch madness. Madness is real and immutable. Whether we think of it or not has no effect on it. Indeed, if we wiped out all particular men, that would not touch madness. Madness is immutable. It's eternal. It's indestructible. And therefore, universals are to be thought of for Plato as not thoughts and not particulars, but actual entities. Things, real external objects. Only, of course, they're not physical. But they are nevertheless, in his view, real. And that's why, although Plato's word for them is a Greek word, idea, it's very common not to call them the world of ideas because idea to us suggests a thought in somebody's mind. And that's why most people translate the actual word idea into the word form, which is, has the virtue of being entirely meaningless and therefore doesn't mislead people into thinking that Plato's ideas are ideas in a mind. They are free-floating universals. Up there, there is subwayhood <laughs> and banana splitness and you name it. Now, there are no banana splits. It's not sensory. It's the essence of banana split as such. Whereas down here, of course, there are particular individual things. 
How many of them? Well, for every class of particulars, there is a corresponding universal. For every abstract word that we use, and undoubtedly for a great many that we haven't yet discovered. There is one such to every group of many in this world. Universals are unchanging, immutable, eternal. Particulars are changing, temporal, Heraclitian. Universals are perfect. Particulars are imperfect. They simply approximate the perfection of the forms. Universals are non-material. Now, I should point out they are also non-mental. Because minds are also particulars. Your mind, her mind, his mind. What's up there is not a particular mind, but mindness. The universal that's common to all minds. And therefore, universals are neither mental nor physical. They're simply universals. Whereas the things down here, if we leave aside minds, are essentially material. Universals are knowable by thought, particulars only by the senses. But particulars are not really knowable, according to Plato. Because down here, in this world, all you can have is subjective opinions. There he agrees with Heraclitus and the Sophists. True knowledge is always knowledge of the forms, of the ideas, never of the particulars in this world. Now, of these two worlds, which do you think Plato regarded as really real? Well, obviously, the world of forms. That's reality. Now, why? Well, for a number of reasons. Ask yourself, what does it mean to say that something is real? What are the tests, so to speak, of reality? Well, Plato gives a number of tests, and on every test, the world of forms comes out with flying colors, and the world in which we live fails miserably. Here are four such tests, for instance. To be real, a thing has to exist. Now, for instance, you say Santa Claus isn't real. He doesn't exist. But follow that out. For a thing to exist, it can't be contradictory, says Plato, which is true. But for a thing to be non-contradictory, it has to be motionless. That's the Heraclitian view, because change involves a contradiction. What can we say about the things in this world, then? Are they real? Well, they're contradictory, which means they are and they are not. They are somehow, says Plato, a union of what is and what isn't. They are being and non-being. They are therefore not real. They are partly illusory. Kind of, uh, they have about the status of a dream. It's there, but it isn't. It is and it isn't. For Plato, the real must therefore be the immutable. That's test one. Or again, we can use the test that a thing is real when it's knowable. Plato held very firmly the view that reality is that which is the object of knowledge. And as we've seen, if knowledge is of reality, and knowledge is only of the world of forms, then the world of forms is reality, not this world. And then by a third test, Plato equated the real with the perfect, with the ideal. And this is a usage of the word real which has survived to this day. You serve somebody a piece of apple pie, and he says, that's real apple pie. Or you say about him, he's a real man. Uh, or there used to be a newspaper that said, the paper for real New Yorkers. Now, they obviously didn't mean as opposed to hallucinatory <laughs> New Yorkers. They mean good by real. And that usage is firmly accepted by Plato. So on that count also, the equation of the real with the ideal, the world of forms comes out as reality. 
And finally, we characteristically use the word real to stand for the original as against simply the imitations. Now, for instance, the other night somebody said to me when I was complimenting, um, what is that product called? Potato buds, uh, the uh, form of uh, instant mashed potatoes. Uh, somebody said to me, oh, they're not real. That isn't really mashed potatoes. Now, they didn't mean that it was hallucinatory or non-existent, or even that it didn't taste good. They mean this isn't real, original, natural mashed potatoes. This is just an imitation. Well, on that test also. The world of forms is the original. It's the independent. The world in which we live is just an imitation, derivative, or projection of the world of forms. So on that count of originality also, the world of forms emerges as reality. What then is the status of this world in which we live? Well, says Plato, it is like a byproduct or a derivative or a projection or a reflection of true reality. Now, if you want a uh, metaphor, which is simply a metaphor, but it's one that uh, I've used uh, for years as my own, not Plato's, but it makes it as clear as I think you can. You have to project standing in an amusement park and looking into one of those distorted amusement park mirrors. Now, in this uh, simile or analogy, you represent the world of forms. And the distorted, twisted, garish reflection of you represents the imperfect image of you projected into the mirror. Now, to make it a proper parallel, we have to assume that the mirror is multifaceted. So that where there's one of you, there's a whole variety of images. And an ignorant person looking at them might confuse it and think there's many different people, but there's actually only one. It's just that the image is splintered. And now we have to imagine someone there with a crank whirling these uh, facets around. So the images seem to be racing around even though you are standing motionless. Now, that is approximately Plato's view of this world. Up there in the Platonic heaven is a single, motionless, perfect, non-material reality. But it projects itself outward and assumes the illusory appearance of a world of imperfect, multiple, moving images. And that world is the world we're living in temporarily. Now, Plato, of course, does not use the example of a mirror. He does say that this world is the world of forms reflected or projected into a medium, but not into a physical mirror. Well, what does he think that the world of forms projects into? Well, this is a fairly technical point from Plato, but just to satisfy your curiosity if you have it, I'll mention that in one of his later dialogues, the Timaeus, he reasons as follows. He says that this world we know from Heraclitus must be a union of what is and what isn't. It must somehow be a union of reality and unreality. And this world in which we live must therefore be a compound. The forms we know represent the element of reality. But what represents the element of unreality that is part of an essential part of this world? We need a nothing. A what is not, which sort of is, though, see? Because if it's just plain, ordinary, garden variety nothing, then we have left only the forms again, and we didn't get this world into existence. So this world, according to Plato, has to arise from a union of the forms with a principle of non-being which somehow is. Now, that's a big problem. 
What could it be? The nothing which is. Sort of. Well, Plato took his cue here from the atomists. The answer is empty space. Space, according to Plato, is nothing. And yet it exists. It is empty space now. It exists. It is therefore, in effect, the stand-in for the mirror, in my example. It is the actual medium which enables the forms to take on physical uh, location. Not the forms themselves, but their images. And of course, space being extended in three dimensions, being spread out, it's suitable to be that element which gives material, physical character to the non-material uh, forms. And therefore, this world is really the forms shining out into empty space. That's Plato's final theory of the relation between the two worlds. Therefore, if we took away empty space and wiped out this world, the forms would go on untouched. But if we did anything to the forms, this world would vanish in the same way as the image in the mirror would if you went away. But you don't have to worry about that happening because the forms are by their nature immutable and nothing can happen to them. Now, as to how this world came about, Plato, being a Greek, did not believe it was created ex nihilo, out of nothing. He believed that the stuff of the world always existed. The forms were always projecting into space. And therefore, matter in a primitive form always existed. But he tells a story, which is the forerunner of many religious views, the story so-called of the demiurge. This is another myth. Whenever Plato tells a myth, it means take it seriously, but not literally. It means he's trying to say something which he doesn't know how to say, but he means it, but not literally. <laughs> now, the myth of the demiurge, D-E-M-I-U-R-G-E, is as follows. The demiurge uh, is a sort of godlike but very limited soul that wanders free in the universe. Not a form and not matter, kind of a third category. Sort of like a god, but nothing like the Christian god. Well, this demiurge wandered by one day and saw all this chaotic matter. And being good, he said to himself, uh, isn't there some way I could organize things better? So with one eye on the perfection of the world of forms, he shaped and organized the matter, molded it like, a, like an architect to produce as much order, harmony, symmetry, and perfection as he could. And that was the actual source of the lawfulness and the order of the world uh, which we observe. This is the most primitive form of what later became the argument from design for the existence of God. That is, the world is so orderly, it must have had an orderer, a designer. And this is the earliest, one of the earliest. There were some pre-Socratics who anticipated Plato, but the most influential early version of that argument. In any event, Plato is insistent that the demiurge was not all-powerful. He did as good as he could, but remember, this world had a very recalcitrant element in its constitution, and that is nothing, see. And that element, positively, you can't do anything with. It simply is deficient. <laughs> and consequently, there was a certain imperfection had to remain in this world that is beyond anyone's power. And that's the reason why the world is imperfect. It's imperfect because it's partly not here. Uh, now you know the basis and the essence of Plato's metaphysics. Now, there's more to say about Plato's metaphysics, because I haven't yet brought in Plato's God, 
or to be exact, the ancestor of what later became the god of Christianity. It wasn't the demiurge. He just appears in one dialogue and he's out. He never comes back again. What it was, well, I can tell you, because uh, to know that, we have to leave this world and embark on an excursion into the world of forms in order to discover its content in greater detail. Now, that excursion will begin next week's lecture. And uh, after we take it, we will devote the rest of the lecture to all the consequences that Plato drew from his metaphysics for man's life on Earth in epistemology, in psychology, in ethics, and politics. Well, till then, let's draw a line here. Thank you. It's some motionless process. I may say the Christians had exactly the same problem. God created the world, and God they held on platonic grounds was completely motionless. How did he create the world if he couldn't do anything? And their answer was he did it the same way Plato's forms projected. Uh, and to grasp that, you have to go in the higher mysteries beyond the province of human reason. Uh, this is a truly fascinating question which I'll confine myself to answering briefly, but it's excellent. In the history of philosophy, there have been both the empiricist and the rationalist sides to the reason-senses dichotomy. I didn't use the word empiricist, but that's the side that would say we start with the senses, and then it turns out that they subsequently say reason is no good, and we have just the senses. Why did the Greeks take the rationalist side instead of the senses are valid or good and the reason is not uh, side? Uh, that's an excellent question, and my answer to that would be, of course, these two views as presented here are false, both false. The view that reason is right and the senses are wrong, or that the senses are right and reason is useless, are both false. But it is significant that the Greeks took the rationalist side rather than the empiricist side in the sense that's being used in this question. And I would say the answer is because the Greeks were thinkers in the following way. If you're going to be wrong, and I don't mean to say that some errors are wronger or less wrong than others, but if you're going to be wrong, it is much superior to be a rationalist in a certain limited respect. Because if you take the other side and say the senses are valid, but you can't trust the mind, like David Hume did, for instance, you are then in the position of an animal or a skeptic. You are in the position of saying nobody can know anything. And under that viewpoint, knowledge immediately comes to a halt. You simply can't know anything. Because a human being who denies the validity of reason wipes out the possibility of intellectual development. So ideally, mankind would have started with the proper relationship of the two faculties. But if they had to start wrong, it's perfectly understandable that they would start by accepting the validity of thought. And then if they were led to primitive conclusions which seemed to defy the evidence, they clung to their reason as they understood it, and wrote off the sensory evidence. That, of course, is profoundly wrong. But if you're going to make a mistake and continue to think, you cannot abandon thought. In this sense, the uh, rationalists have always been philosophically superior to the skeptics. Although, of course, objectivism repudiates both. And they have always been infinitely more influential on mankind. The skeptics simply set up the next rationalist, that's all. The sophists give the time for Plato to come in, and the later skeptics give the door open to Augustine. And uh, the Renaissance skeptics open the door to Descartes, and David Hume opened the door to Kant, etc. 
The whole pattern has been that the skeptics simply wipe out everything and the next rationalist comes in uh, to institute his own new form of mysticism. But in that respect, it is the, of these two errors, it is the rationalists that are the only ones that have even thought and that have influenced mankind for good or evil. The skeptics disqualify themselves on the face of it. Uh, if the sophists believe that one can't know anything, how do they know what a desire is? A perfectly good question, to which I can only say the sophists were inconsistent. They were not properly skeptical. <laughs> Their modern followers are much more consistent, and they say, we can't talk about desires because we have the faintest idea what a desire is. Nor can you ever know what your desires are. How can you be sure of anything? Kant says, for instance, your desires as they really are are entirely unknowable to you. All you can know is your desires as they appear to you. So-called phenomenal desires, not the noumenal desires. And he has modern disciples who go one step further. And they say, how do you even know the way your desires appear to you? How do you know they don't appear to you differently from the way they really appear to you? <laughs> and therefore, you can't know anything. I mean, from this point of view, uh, gorgeous, as I say, was uh, a half-hearted, fair-weather skeptic compared to the 20th century. Did atoms hold all atoms are the same? How do soul atoms differ from regular atoms? No, they're all the same in the sense that they all have only the characteristics of size, shape, motion, and number. But the uh, soul atoms are finer, whatever that means, smaller, I guess, more polished, more mobile. They quiver a lot. <laughs> Things like that. Please give some additional argument against mechanistic materialism. Oh, that's fine. And in conjunction with that, there's a long argument here in favor of mechanistic materialism, which, uh, because of the time, I think I'll bypass because I, I have read it, and by the nature of what I argue, I, I uh, state an answer. I think it'll answer that. Well, I give you offhand some further points. The first question to ask is, what is the argument in favor of materialism? What is to defend that? Now, if you take an unprejudiced view of reality, if you truly are going to go by observation, you observe that there's an external world and an internal world. You have direct awareness of matter on the outside and of consciousness in your own head. Now, the standard materialist, the low-grade materialist, will say, and the low-grade can, of course, have uh, chairs at Harvard, um, <laughs> standard materialist will say, I don't know what you're talking about when you talk about consciousness or mind. I can't taste it, I can't feel it, I can't uh, weigh it, I can't dissect it. Now I can crack open your, your head and stick my fingers in your brain. That's good, solid, and physical. I can have a brain sandwich. <laughs> but I can't uh, find any mind, see, and therefore it's a myth. Now that argument, in actual fact, is fantastic. What it consists of doing is setting up the characteristics of matter as the criterion of reality, and then saying, since mind doesn't have those characteristics, it isn't real. Well, if that method of reasoning were valid, you could do exactly the same thing in reverse. You can make a list of all the things that matter doesn't have. Now, for instance, you can't psychoanalyze electrons or matter. You can discuss their motivation. You can discuss its feelings, its sensations, its premises, etc. Now, suppose I were to say, 
Since you can't do any of this with matter, obviously matter doesn't exist, only mind. Your immediate answer would be, how can you take characteristics of consciousness and arbitrarily say all of reality must fulfill it? When there's obviously two kinds of things. Now the same principle applies equally to matter. Then, of course, the materialist will come back and he'll say, yeah, but you can't define consciousness. All you can do is give synonyms. You can say consciousness is awareness. So, or list its properties, but you can't say what is it. To which the answer is, in exactly that same way, you're in that position with regard to matter. You can give synonyms. You can say it's material, it's physical, it's extended, but you cannot define it in terms of other concepts any more than you can consciousness. All definitions presuppose some cognitive primaries, which are the basic categories in terms of which you define everything else, but which themselves cannot be reduced back further. In effect, the axioms of definition. And there is every reason to hold that consciousness as a phenomenon is simply descriptively different from matter, and consequently that uh, you cannot uh, do any more than say, if you want to know what I mean by consciousness, you point ostensibly the same way you do with matter or with green for that matter. Now, how would you communicate green to someone who was, uh, uh, didn't know? You'd have to point to several instances and say, that's green. That's what's called an ostensive definition and a definition by pointing. And it's the way all primaries are defined. How would you define existence? Same thing. Since everything exists, you can't distinguish existence from anything else. The only way you define existence is just wave your arm and say it's that, covering everything. And the same principle is applicable to consciousness. Not that it covers everything, but that you grasp it by direct introspection. Now, I remind you of the crucial point that we have to distinguish what philosophy can do and what science can do. I, and objectivism, put forth no theories on the ultimate relationship between matter as we now know it and consciousness. It might be the case. I say it might be simply that I'm not ruling this out. That uh, consciousness is a phenomenon which results from a certain enormous complexity of organization of matter. And in that sense, it's a derivative phenomenon. It might be the case that there is simply irreducibly consciousness and matter as two distinct phenomena, which in some form always exist, and combine in certain ways under appropriate conditions. It might be the case that there is a third or a tenth phenomenon that we yet do not know, of which matter is one product and consciousness is another, or one form and another. Some world stuff as yet outside our knowledge, some type of energy. I don't know, nobody knows, and nobody has any business speculating in the state of our present knowledge nor will philosophy have any means of answering this question. That will be a question to be answered by the appropriate scientific discoveries in physics, biology, psychology. I don't prejudge those questions. I simply say, on philosophic grounds, you cannot get away from the following. One, there is consciousness which is not reducible to matter as we now understand the phenomenon of matter. It has its own characteristics and its own method of being known. And it is as real a phenomenon as external physical matter. Two, the conclusions of consciousness are efficacious. They have effects on the actual behavior of conscious entities. Three, consciousness is, in the human case, volitional. Now, the proof of these, of course, 
these latter points, I uh, assume you know from objectivist literature, and I won't get into them. Those are the points on the mind-body question which are philosophically untouchable. Now, the ultimate uh, physical or metaphysical interrelations of the two, I don't know, and it makes no difference. Philosophically, it makes no difference. Now, pursuing materialism for a moment, it comes in two varieties. One is called reductive materialism, and the other is called epiphenomenalism. Reductive materialism is the crudest type. That's the type, you know, that says thinking is nothing but a quivering of the brain cells. Uh, love is a squirting of glandular juices, etc. Now, this is a crude confusion of necessary condition and identity. Maybe it's true that certain glands have to squirt before you can experience love. That does not mean that love is its necessary condition. Obviously, it has to be something different from the thing which gives rise to it or is presupposed by it. Now, as uh, one philosopher put it, you cannot argue with a man who says love is, is a squirting of juices. That's distinct from love is caused by or presupposes, but love literally is. Because he said to argue against a position, what you try and do is show that it leads to an absurdity. But if somebody comes in the room and utters an absurdity as his formal position, <laughs> there is nothing you can say. If somebody comes in and says, my view is that elephants are peaches, now do something. <laughs> Now, that's reductive materialism. Now, the more serious form of materialism is epiphenomenalism. And that is the view that there is such a thing as mind which is distinct from matter. Only. It's completely helpless byproduct of matter. It is incapable of uh, initiating any action. It's a passive re resultant of physical processes. It's completely determined, completely purposeless sort of like a useless waste product that nature gives off. Now, the problems with this are all of the problems that we indicated and even more. If mind is metaphysically helpless and has no efficacy or effect, then the theory is right away self-refuting. The advocates of it are mindless by their own statement, or rather they have a useless mind that has no effects and therefore their mind had nothing to do with the motion of their hands or their tongues as they were busy propounding their theory. <laughs> of course, insofar as uh, uh, there's no uh, mind, there's no possibility of choice and therefore materialism necessarily implies determinism and that, as you must know from objectivist literature, is thoroughly self-refuting. Uh, the determinist can know anything, including that he's determined. And insofar as it implies a denial of purpose, it's also self-refuting. That means there's no way in principle of distinguishing between a man whose hand shakes because of palsy and a man whose hand shakes because he wants to express a certain thought, because there's no such thing as wanting to express. Everything that happens is purposeless. It's simply mechanistically caused. Well, if that's the case, no one has a right to expect you to consider the results of his palsy shaking. Now, beyond all of these, there is a simple fact. And it's often very helpful to appeal to facts in philosophy. <laughs> it is not a common practice, but it's a very... <laughs> it's a very desirable one. Now, I put it to you that you cannot look at the actual facts of the world and entertain for a moment the idea that ideas mental phenomena have no effects, which is the essence of materials.
You could not account for the facts of human behavior. The obvious facts that their behavior is dictated by their ideas, including their value judgments. That when they change their values, they change their action. That they go to psychotherapists in order to change their mental processes, in order, therefore, to act differently, that that's the only way they can do it. That knowledge is a vital necessity without which a man cannot cross the street or satisfy the most minimal hunger pains. And that knowledge means something mental. The acquisition of awareness, of ideas, of information. Uh, you could not begin to make sense of human history. From uh, the Industrial Revolution through the self-flagellation of the worst medieval saint on mechanistic materialist grounds that somehow, in some funny way, the atoms started to quiver and St. Francis went out and plunged himself in a snow heap every time he had a sexual desire. I mean, it's just bizarre. Now, I don't want to kill the whole period on that, but I regard mechanistic materialism as simply senseless. I think Plato's philosophy is infinitely more sophisticated, more uh, uh, thoughtful, and more, much better reasoned. Uh, it's wrong, but uh, I'd take Plato over materialist any day. Now, if according to Heraclitus all is flux and nothing exists, how can definitive laws of change exist and why are these not subject to change? Is this not logically contradictory? Yes, it certainly is. Uh, he should not have said that, but that was his better Greek side coming out in the midst of his Heracleitianism. Now, I just remembered questions from the floor, so I'll take a few from the floor. Yes. Now, we'll follow the rules of last time. Relevance and terseness. Well, you, you said that one of the criteria for an area of knowledge being a branch of philosophy is that no special knowledge in one category of reality required. But to establish a set of criteria, isn't, and in general, and you Yes, I better clarify that statement. I said last time that in philosophy, no special knowledge of any one area of reality was required. I didn't say that as a defining characteristic, but a consequence of the fact that philosophic principles are universal. You can find them anywhere. So it's not that you don't have to know anything about reality, but wherever you look, for instance, whatever you look at, it is what it is. And so you can get the law of identity from peaches or art or uh, battleships, you see. And so it's not that you don't have to look at reality, but you can find philosophic principles anywhere precisely because they're universal. Now you raise the question, well, what about aesthetics? Don't you have to know about music to have a philosophy of music and about painting to have a philosophy of painting? Obviously, yes, but then that is already applied philosophy. That is specialized philosophy. That is a union of abstract philosophy, which is what I was defining, in a particular field. Now, as soon as you start to apply philosophy to a particular area, you obviously have to have specialized knowledge of that area. If you're going to have a philosophy of education, epistemology by itself will not give it to you. It'll give you the base, but then you have to think what kind of curriculum is proper and at what age should children be taught what and with what motive and etc. If you're going to have a philosophy of law, politics will give you the base, but it won't tell you what should the Constitution say and how many sessions of Congress should there be and how many houses of Congress should there be and you know who owns the oil rights to what kind of land and etc. So you have to know 
a great deal of particular material. And the same is obviously true in the philosophy of music or philosophy of science, whatever it happens to be. I was talking about philosophy abstractly. The basic branches, not the detailed applications of them. Uh, I'll try to get people that haven't been asking last week. Yes, if I can remember. Uh, tonight, uh, one problem came up concerning the atoms and the space between them. Yeah. Interestingly enough, scientifically, I have a better feel for this than philosophically. If the world is, if there are no holes in existence, yeah. there are no holes in existence, and the world is solidly packed, I don't even know how to phrase the question exactly, but what I'm trying to say is if the world is made up of atoms, protons, whatever they can give, there must be something between them. And is that something made up of something else, or is it empty I don't know. Oh, no, wait a minute now. I think I get the drift, but let's try to make it terse. Uh, the question is if the world is made up of ultimate particles. There must be something between them if there's to be no vacuum. Is that something between them itself made of particles, or is it continuous? If it's made of particles, then is there something between them and etc.? Uh, uh, this is a question which, as far as I know, there's no philosophic method of answering. I think if I get the drift of your question, you'd have to say that ultimately there is something continuous. Because if everything is made of particles, what ultimately differentiates one particle from another? Unless, unless, there are different kinds of particles. In which case there's nothing between them, but there's more than one type of particle, and consequently that distinguishes them. However, I would not speculate about that kind of question. I am not a physicist, and I despise, not, I don't mean you, but I mean... Um, <laughs> armchair metaphysicians who become physicists. You know, if you want to become a physicist, then go out and get facts. I don't believe in doing it by deduction. It can't be done that way. Yes? Do I regard Plato's metaphysics as being motivated primarily by his ethical viewpoint? What do you have in mind as his ethical viewpoint here, since we haven't covered that yet? Well, it couldn't be his opposition to Stoicism, since Stoicism what? I mean, Well, that is a question which I don't know the answer to, nor know that the answer would make any difference, and which I'm reluctant to speculate about. As two entirely different questions. What does a philosopher say, and is it true or false, and what is his motive? Now, it's deuces wild with regard to their motives, unless they have written something which explicitly says that this is their motive. And uh, it doesn't make any difference. Suppose Plato was motivated by a passion for the all-powerful state or by a passion for truth as he saw it. In either case, he put forth the ideas he did for the reasons that he did, and they had the influence that they did. And so it's simply a question of your private, personal evaluation of Plato's character, which I don't see as having any philosophic significance at all. Uh, and therefore, I stay away altogether from questions of the motive of philosophers, unless we're specifically in a psychological and not a philosophical context, which is not the context of these lectures. Uh, obviously, Plato was primarily concerned with uh, value questions, or rather, he was passionately, I take out the primarily, he was passionately concerned with value questions. He thought that what had been done to Socrates was vicious and evil, the death by hemlock, and that there was something fundamentally wrong with Athens, and that it had to be reorganized politically. He thought the sophists were depraved, uh, but he was also fascinated by mathematics. He was fascinated by questions about the nature of the universe. And I defy anybody to say this interest was greater than this, and this is what gave rise to this. 
And as I say, I don't see the relevance. Let me try a few more written ones. Um, if according to Heraclitus is nothing is and everything is becoming, how can it be that the quote you read last week from a modern commentator on this subject define modeling clay as still being merely modeling clay after going through a series of changes in form? Well, you misunderstood the quote. He said that you could call it modeling clay only if it didn't change from being modeling clay. But he went on to say in the Heraclitian world that even that wouldn't remain the same. So the modeling clay would change into, I forget what, papier-mâché, and that would change into something else and into something else, and therefore nothing would ever remain constant, and therefore nothing is. So it's simply misunderstanding of the quotation. Uh, you said Socrates was the first philosoph philosopher martyr. Could you tell us about some others? Well, that is a, uh, you know, that's uh, anecdotal history, not uh, philosophy. Aristotle came close to being one, only he having a very different philosophy from uh, Socrates uh, wouldn't let it happen. Uh, he, in fact, deliberately fled Athens at a time when he knew he was going to be persecuted. And uh, uh, rather than submit to the will of the people, his famous line is, I'm not going to give the Athenians a chance to sin against philosophy twice. Um, Galileo is very close to being a martyr, uh, having been forced to recant uh, uh, his view. And you know, of course, the famous story that after he got up from his uh, recantation officially uh, regarding whether the earth uh, moves around the, the uh, sun, he whispered, or he's alleged to have whispered, but it does move. It does turn, you see. Uh, only he whispered it, which is perfectly justifiable. I mean, he'd have to have been crazy to yell it aloud at a time when he'd be burned at the stake. Spinoza is a classic example of a philosophic martyr. A man, uh, the only famous major Jewish philosopher in the history of Western thought, who was formally excommunicated by the Jews uh, of his time. Uh, I don't regard Marx as a serious philosopher. Uh, um, on the grounds that he was an atheist, uh, which in fact, uh, in his special Spinozistic way, he was and wasn't. <laughs> he is simultaneously an atheist and the most religious man in the history of thought, but we'll get to that when we get to him. But he certainly was made to go through hell for his views, and many others. I'll take a oral one. At the very back, I see a hand in dark blue. Are you, um, according to Plato. Yeah. According to Plato, what is the status of mythical concepts? Concepts which have no actual embodiments in this world. Now, Santa Claus is a proper name, so that's not a concept. But suppose you say um, unicorn or centaur or something like that, which could have many instances. You see, an, an individual can't exist in the other world, only universals. What is their status? Yes, of course, their universals exist in the other world, too. There is centaurhood and uh, 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 unicornness and all the rest of it. There's even square circlehood, according to many Platonists. Uh, on the grounds, you see, that we can think of those things. If we think of those things, they must be something. We can't think about what is not. And since they don't exist here, they must exist in Plato's world of forms. And therefore, yes. Now, Plato, in one of his dialogues, a late dialogue called the Parmenides, uh, raise the question, what kinds of universals are there? He has Socrates as his mouthpiece. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, he was disturbed by the question because it seemed there had to be all kinds of universals that he didn't care to have in his perfect world. For instance, there had to be universals of evil. There had to be perfect rottenness. <laughs> because rottenness is universal. And Plato was disturbed at the idea that there has to be all these uh, corrupt things in their perfect form in the other world. But by the logic of his argument, they have to. Also, he didn't very much like the idea that there has to be universals of mud, universal dirt, universal toenails. <laughs> and uh, he has Socrates say at this point in the dialogue that he feels that he's being driven into absurdity, and yet he doesn't know what to do with it. And um, the, uh, one of the speakers in the dialogue, Parmenides, of course, it isn't historically accurate because Parmenides was long dead, reassures Socrates, and he says that he's disturbed by those things only because he's still young. And when he grows older, he'll, the implication is he will accept with equanimity the complete assortment of things in the other world and not be disturbed by it. So Plato himself was in debate. But uh, his followers made it all embracing. There are witches up there and fairies uh, and everything. Uh, on the aisle in the green shirt. Well, technically, Plato's empty space is not matter, but an ingredient of matter. Matter is the union of empty space with the forms. However, you could look at it from this point of view. If you ask Plato what is the essence of matter, since he believes that all the secondary qualities, that is, the color, sounds, taste, etc., are simply subjective in the same way that Democritus and the atomists believe, all that's left for matter to have is the quantitative characteristics. You know, extension in three dimensions. And extension in three dimensions is precisely what space is. And therefore, it's very common for advocates of the Democritean view that matter is only quantitative to reduce matter to space and say that, therefore, out there in the real world, there's only space. And you can find that in Plato, since he subscribes to that dichotomy. Now, you see, that has the effect of dissolving the physical world altogether into nothing. And it's simply another reason why that dichotomy between the primary and secondary qualities is disastrous. But you can find it in Plato. Now, I'll take a few more written ones. Uh, if uh, Pythagoras' influence is responsible for the premise that only quantitative statements can be scientific, is it not also then Pythagoras' influence which gives rise to the outright philosophical mysticism and irrationalism of thinkers in the abstract sciences? Well, I don't know quite what you call as abstract. You mean mathematical sciences. It certainly is significantly Pythagoras' influence that uh, mathematicians have such a tendency to otherworldliness and mysticism as very pronounced among particularly modern mathematicians. They believe their axioms have no relationship to reality, their concepts have no relation to observation, that they start off in their own little world of numbers, only they don't believe there's a real world of numbers that they're trying to learn, that they make it up as they go along according to their whims. So they're kind of the union of Pythagoras and the sophists. Uh, man is the measure of all numbers. Uh, numbers are that they are, etc. That's modern mathematics. It's kind of subjectivist Pythagoreanism. Would I hold Pythagoras responsible? Well, ultimately, he's the first, but uh, there's a long, long chain in between, uh, certainly including Plato and the centuries of Christianity and Descartes and Leibniz and Kant and Hegel, 
So Pythagoras is comparatively innocent. Um, did Cradleus really stop talking, according to Aristotle? Are philosophical psychology and epistemology synonyms? No. Philosophical psychology, in the sense that I use it in this course, is the philosophical theory of the nature of man, his basic nature. And it essentially includes questions such as, does man have free will or not? Or is he determined? Does uh, he, uh, is he motivated by purpose or is he simply a mechanistic being? Uh, are emotions basically opposite to the reason or is there some relationship between the two, etc.? Now, all of those questions, in a way, are really uh, resolved in metaphysics and epistemology. So philosophical psychology, as we use the term in this course, is simply the application to the theory of man of your conclusions in metaphysics and epistemology. It's not really a separate subject. It's just a convenient pedagogical uh, device. Epistemology, of course, is specifically the theory of the nature and means of knowledge. It will have an effect on your view of man, but it's not exactly the same thing. It will have a crucial effect. If you say that reason is impotent, you'll have a sophist-type view of man or some equivalent. But uh, that doesn't mean that it's exactly the same thing. Can you give me a line of progression of Aristotelian thinkers up to today in writing? No, not in writing, but in speaking. The main Aristotelian thinkers, the main ones, that's all I'll give you, are Aristotle first. Uh, passing over all the little followers of him in the Aristotelian school, some of whom are very good, like Theophrastus, but they don't have much to add. Uh, the next main one is Thomas Aquinas, who of course attempts to blend Aristotle with Christianity, but who really knows Aristotle, and who on many smaller points, smaller but vital points, is better than Aristotle. That is, uh, he's a real philosopher, and all you have to do is learn to read him excerpting away the religion. And he's a fascinating philosopher. There are some Aristotelians of the Renaissance, none of them very important. Pompomazzi might perhaps be the best known one of the Aristotelians of the Renaissance. There is John Locke, who is, however, as are most British philosophers, a motley medley of just about everybody. He's a little bit of Augustine, and a little bit of quite a bit of Descartes, and a little bit of Thomas Hobbes, and quite a bit of Francis Bacon, and uh, some Aristotle, and it's all mashed together, as is typical of British philosophy. But if you excise him properly, you can find an Aristotelian thread running through Locke. Um, after Locke, the next one uh, is Ayn Rand. Uh, there is uh, no Aristotelianism. It dies completely after Kant, whose uh, specific effect was to annihilate the last traces of it. And so there's none in the 19th century at all, and in the 20th century until Ayn Rand. Those are the main ones. The real actual main line is Aristotle, Aquinas, one quarter of Locke, and Ayn Rand. I'll take one more um, from uh, the floor, I think we have a couple of minutes. Who has not asked one? Someone who hasn't for either week, so we'll give somebody new a chance if there is somebody. Or someone who hasn't asked one tonight, then. Yes, sir. I can't visualize Plato's case. 
Well, we haven't come to Plato's cave yet in this course. I'm going to tell you about the cave next week. So let's postpone that till then. We will go down into the cave and come up. <laughs> Do I have one last question from someone who hasn't asked one tonight? At the back in some sort of check there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How does Plato account for the fact that particular men are not omniscient if all men are born knowing everything? Well, uh, partly because uh, the knowledge is born in your unconscious. And therefore, a complex process is required to dig it out. You don't simply, it doesn't simply surface by itself. That's Plato's epistemology, how you acquire this knowledge and make it real. And that we'll look at next week. But the point is a complex process is required. It doesn't just pop up by itself. And it's a process of such a nature that if you are interested in the physical world and physical pleasure, you simply won't perform it. You'll turn away from that process and instead concentrate on money and sex and things like that. And so you'll remain ignorant all your life. But if you follow Plato's epistemology and ethics, you will one day hit the jackpot and know everything. For details, next week. Thank you. This course continues with Lecture 3.